BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. People say ain't no good and I'm crazy as a loon Cause I shave my head in the morning and pick guitar in the afternoon Just like old Chief and Charlie I like to lay around in the shade Well I ain't got no money but you better believe I got it made Cause I ain't asking nobody for nothing bald-headed country boy along what's up folks thank y'all for tuning in to the josh terry podcast uh i don't get giddy i don't get excited uh, about shows anymore i really don't uh it's just become natural and just you know i just don't fangirl but today i've got somebody that i would have never thought i would have had on this show 10, 15 years ago, and I am so excited. Mr. Jason Michael Carroll, what is up, my dude? Brother, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, you you have no idea. Like, I am, I am grateful. Uh, so before we get started, I wanted to tell you this, but I wanted to wait until I had you on camera or already uh, us recording first. So there's... Yeah, I'm sure you have artists that their songs touched you at some point in your life and you never will be able to get over that song and you can always remember where you were at or whatever. You have a song called Let Me Go. And I was probably 20, 21 years old and I was seeing this girl and we were literally where parents didn't like either one of us on either side, but we were just like puppy love, just everything. And we made a decision to move out and move in together and literally live pretty much in a cardboard box, to be honest with you. And we, I had your CD then I had, I had that album then. 
And me and my buddy used to throw down to growing up is getting old. I still, I still rock that one to this day. It's one of my favorites. And uh, let me tell you, we were riding dirt roads and that song, uh, Let Me Go came on. And I had never heard it. It was just, it was back when you bought CDs, you just let the whole damn thing play through. And I remember me and her pulling over on the side of a dirt road crying when that song came on. And we were like, you know what? If we're going to make this decision, this was a sign from the good Lord right here. Uh, it didn't work out, but <laughs> it was, it was just one of those moments in my life that it was just like the perfect song came on at the perfect time. And really I'm all about the God sending you in the right direction in life. And like, he'll give you little signs to let you know, even if you're not where you want to be, you're where you're supposed to be. And that yep. song, when it came on that day, I'm telling you, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I still remember being 21 years old crying. So I just, I want to thank you. I, it's just, it's something that if I ever got a chance to tell you, I wanted to tell you. Man, I do that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, the reason I wanted to record that song was that it, uh, it was exactly that. I mean, it, it was, it was almost like hearing living our love song again, you know, yeah. writing, writing live in our love song i wrote that out of an experience you know and and we'll get to that i'm sure as the as the story goes on today but um you know the hearing hearing those from the first uh, from the first intro to that song to to the last i wanted to keep the demo the recording actually similar to what the demo was that i heard so um it was one of the few songs that i heard that i was like man i've got to have this because i I was a big fan of, you know, recording my own music because I think as an artist, that's what we're responsible to do. Uh, I Not that I don't think that there's way better songwriters in Nashville than I am. Uh, but I believe as an artist, part of my responsibility to to the listeners, to my, to my, I hate the word fans, to my friends out there, yeah. um, uh, I think is to let them know who I am with the songs I release. And that one really kind of captured it, you know, with the, I'm from Texas originally. Um, so it referenced Texas in there, you know, and, uh, I mean, who hasn't been sitting on a tailgate, rubbing on his rough neck, talking about running away while he was puffing on a cigarette and just thinking, huh, how am I going to say goodbye? Yeah. Man, come on. Come on. I just got <laughs> gooseys everywhere, son. Oh. oh, dude, I'm telling you, it's you. It seems like everything that you've ever put out, whether it was, I know mainly your singles are just so powerful. Um, one thing that we do is we travel a lot with social media personalities. And my goal and what I want to do for the rest of my life is I want to take artists that are up and coming that don't have the big social media following or are horrible at social media or whatever. And I want to get these folks. I do. There's nobody. I'm telling you, it's, it's the more the. I mean this in all due respect to most of the artists. The people that are really good at your craft are horrible at social media, but it's you're you're great at what you do. Like you're not going to be good. You, it's hard for me to see an artist like you or so many others that we hear at writers rounds that are just amazing, but they suck at marketing themselves. So what I try to do is I take these social media personalities and I mix them. These people have millions of followers and they can sneeze on screen and it's going to get a hundred thousand views or whatever. So I mix them with these artists that I'm obsessed with that I think are just really talented that whether they don't fit a mold or Whatever it is, I want to mix the two. Yesterday, there's a woman that's here that's traveling to a Mission 22, a veterans event with us tomorrow. Her name's Gypsy. She travels the country in her van. 
that's all she does. Like she lives this free, just really beautiful life. And uh, anyway, I played her a list of lies yesterday and she had never heard it. And this 45, 43 year old woman just breaks down in tears. And it's just like, I do not know how I've never heard that song in my life, but it's sad that those songs aren't the ones that are just being pushed the way they ought to, if that makes sense. And I just, I hate, I hate that. I mean, you, you have obviously a big ass name anyway, like you're well known. I think you're one of those that it's like, why isn't this dude at the top of so many pillars? Like, why isn't this guy more well known? (laughs) (laughs) But dude, yeah, I just, I just think everything you put out is powerful. You don't, you don't put generic shit out there is what I'm saying. Like if you, if it's, some of the party anthem songs that I've I've written, I feel like they're again they're going back to who I am and my responsibility to to the listeners out there. Uh, I, I I think I've lived an interesting enough life to tell my stories and and uh, you know I'm I'm decent at at um, making them rhyme. You know I, I started writing songs when I was eight years old. Uh, my brother we lived in a trailer in uh, Zebulon, North Carolina, and I remember I was uh, my, my my growing up, my my upbringing was a little tumultuous. My dad was a fundamental independent Baptist preacher, but he didn't find Jesus till I was seven years old. And I remember um, growing up the way I did. It was one of the first times, when, <laughs> one of the first memories I have was when I was five years old. We had moved from Texas um, to uh, Youngsville, North Carolina, a little place called White Street. And uh, there was a duplex right off of White Street that we grew that I remember that was one of my first memories in in North Carolina. And uh, my parents would throw keggers out at the uh, duplex that I grew up in. <laughs> and my mom said that one of the parties they were at, they were having a good time. I'm pretty sure there was lots of substances being used in the in, in the in the vicinity. But uh, all of a sudden, my mom started freaking out because she said she couldn't find me. And um, when she went all through the house and was yelling my name. She said the place she found me was on the back porch, sucking on sucking on the um, tap from a keg of beer, and uh, and so that was the first. That's one of my first memories. Actually, was uh, growing up in that duplex, the same duplex where on Friday nights, you know, my parents would go to the video store, but way before Blockbuster, when local video stores were the thing, and uh, and my mom and dad would, you know, they'd rent their movies, whatever came out that they were excited about, and I'm sure some my for my dad it was. You know, something with a with a uh, either a western with John Wayne in it, or or some you know something similar. And and my my mom would typically get one of the movies I remember her renting often was she loved the movie Purple Rain. And uh, um, and then when uh, to keep me quiet, they would shut me up by letting me um, rent a, a film. And one of my buddies next door in the duplex I lived in, Robert Faison. Uh, Robert and I were man, we were so close growing up, dude. And um every every friday night we get back from the video store and robert would meet me in the driveway He'd be kind of like peeking around the peeking around the house like you know and my parents would go inside and robert would come running up out around the house and he'd say did you get it i was like yeah i got it and every saturday morning before my mom kicked us out she she would either say um get out or clean and every <laughs> saturday morning before we got that speech Robert Faison and I were dancing to the video that he was hoping I would pick up every Friday night. It was the Michael Jackson thriller video with the uh, video for I'm bad on the uh, following it up. And so every Saturday morning, my buddy Robert Faison and I were dancing to Michael Jackson's thriller in the living room. <laughs> Dude, that is awesome. That is there. There's a lot of similarities between me and you there. I, I grew <laughs> up in a house with a lot of substance abuse, a, a lot of it to where I didn't know what it was like to go to somebody's house who didn't uh party and throw down like, i was like y'all are y'all are lame until you realize no they're normal 
like, until <laughs> until you realize that maybe you're the parents are the ones that are a little bit out there. But I remember being little and my parents having full blown parties with bands and everything in a little trashy house that's condemned now. And I there's pictures of me on a back porch in pretty much diapers to like three or four. And it's rocking out with the band. And I'm sure there was a couple of times that I picked up stuff that I wasn't supposed to pick up and take a sip of. You know, at eight years old, that's what I did. So being raised that way, I remember um, I was kind of struggling with some things and I couldn't sleep. And I lived in my brother and I shared a room in the end of the trailer. And um, so instead of waking him up, I remember and, and not wanting to be in trouble with my parents, I went and grabbed my backpack and opened it up and um, grabbed a notebook out of my backpack. And I remember taking it out of our bedroom and, and just the notebook and a pen and into the hallway. And then I kind of silently walked to the bathroom. I shut the bathroom door, turned on the light so I wouldn't wake anybody up in the trailer. And I remember going and sitting on the edge of the bathtub and writing out my feelings, writing out my thoughts. And um, ironically, you know, they, they rhymed now. Um, um, they just happened around. I don't, I don't think I sat down trying to write a song, but I remember I was just, something told me to write down what I was feeling. And I, I didn't have a therapist tell me that it was, it was literally just something said, go write it down. Cause I couldn't sleep. And I remember writing it down in my notebook and, and finally feel, thinking I've got everything out. I shut my notebook. I turned the light off, walked back, put my back, my notebook back in my backpack. And I remember sleeping like a baby that night. And since then, I've been writing a song with songs, I guess, to uh, to deal with what you whatever's going on up in here. And uh, obviously, recently, I found out some more about myself. So that was uh, so now it's all kind of making sense. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used yeah. to uh, when I grew up, dude, especially when I got to middle school, I didn't realize like I had mental health issues. I didn't know what anxiety was, didn't know what depression was or anything like that. I was always to where like when I walked into a room or walked into the gym or whatever. And I was a good athlete. So I had friends and stuff, but I always felt alone or I always thought that people were talking about me negatively. It was only later in life that I figured out that nobody gives a damn about you that much to where everybody's talking about you. Right. But I, I learned to write poetry and I was really good at it. And I got a couple of poems that were published in young poets of America, but the day, like I think it was an eighth grade, the day that they made the announcement over the intercom was during baseball season. And I got picked on and I got called gay and every sissy word that they, the guys wanted to call me. So I quit writing. I didn't pick up a pen or paper or do anything again until, um, I don't know if you're familiar with creative vets in Nashville. Um, uh, I've not worked with them yet, but I am very familiar with them. Yeah. Well, they've been on the show a couple of times. And I would love to work with them. I know a lot of my artist friends that do. I do. I'll, I'll, if you don't have Jesse and them's number, I will hook there's, Oh my God. I love their organization so much. So I, they were on the show and I was, I was promoting them and some of the stuff that had come in and I told them that story right there. And uh, I'm not a veteran at all. Like I, I do, I try to help because I was too much of a baby to serve, to be honest with you. Like I just, I was scared to death of it. I wish I would have, but that's looking back. But I told that story to them. And one of the guys that I'm real close with there, Jesse Wayne Taylor was like, let's write a song. If you used to be good at poetry, let's see, you know, if you can do this, let's see if you get it, if you pick up on it. And it was like everything that I had been harboring over the past 20 something years, all the bad shit that had been cluttered in my brain 
the first time I sat down and now I'm addicted to it. I'm a, I'm addicted. Yeah. I'm addicted to it in a way that like, and I don't, I don't care if anything's ever good. Like it's just, it's so therapeutic and it, it makes you feel proud of yourself sometimes to where I, it's hard. I mean, I'm sure you, you know exactly, but you saying that that's what you did or that's what you do for therapy, like starting off. And I, I relate to that so much because that's really what I started doing it back in the day. And that's why I'm doing it now. You know, it, I've had people come up to me at shows after I tell a story like that. Usually I don't tell as many stories for a, like a live show with the full band. Mm -hmm. um, but an acoustic show, I, you know, it's broken down. There's really no structure. So I get to take my time and and kind of tell why I did certain things and why I wrote certain things. And when I tell that story, I have people come up to me afterwards that are actually licensed therapists to say, actually, that's a great that's a great tool that we actually suggest to to some of our patients. So so it's awesome that you found that on your own. I'm like, wow. Yeah, dude, it's. I, anybody that's listening to us right now, I'm telling you, just try, just, just put your thoughts yep. into word or put your thoughts in the, on the paper and you'll be surprised. Like it, it just feels so good, man. Yeah. Is that way? Is that what really got you into like later on? When did you actually start like playing it all? Is that, was the, you writing stuff made you want to pick up a guitar? So my dad, um, was pretty musical. I remember he sold one of his favorite shotguns, um, for a uh for an ibanez guitar which i've actually got in that room over there but um um and he regretted selling that um <laughs> that shotgun because they were it was one of the uh remington 1100s that's uh it's with a 30 inch barrel which is any shotgun enthusiast out there you know that's one of the best shotguns that remington ever made uh and it's one of the best deer guns they've ever made and actually uh finding one with a 30 inch barrel now is hard really hard to do um ironically about seven eight years ago about nine years ago i guess now trying to do all the math with with my dad and everything um about nine years ago i found a little mom and pops uh gun shop here in oxford north carolina and just had just dropped my kids off at school wound up going in there to see what they had and as soon as i walked in the door they had a little spinning display case and the thing was spinning around and the moment i walked in i knew what it was and i said ma'am how much for that remington right there and she goes don't you want to see it i said well yeah, but it was like oh, sold. <laughs> so <laughs> I bought that thing, and I remember dad, man, and uh, I let my. There we go, uh, dude. That's awesome. So I'm guessing that when you bought it, you you gave it to your father. I did. So after I bought that shotgun, I carried it to my dad, and I said, "You know, I said, Dad, I bought this. I know how much you loved your other one." Uh, I said, this is my shotgun, but every time we go hunting, I'll let you use it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So he, he was thrilled, man. I carried He carried that thing. The the last few times we went hunting together. It's pretty awesome. That's cool. My dad, uh, he, he's had a lot of ups and downs in his life. Um, substance abuse, alcoholism. Um, but it always been like a good dad, you know, like it, he was never the one that was going to be there all the time, but he was the one that made sure you had everything you needed. Like, Lights were on, food on. I mean, you might have ate some shitty food at the time. I grew up poor, but he's still like you. You didn't know you grew up poor. Like you were happy, right? And he had a he had a Scottsdale, old uh, Chevrolet Scottsdale or whatever it's called, the square bodies, and he yeah. had to get rid of it to pay bills. And I have made a vow to myself that the, as soon as I get the first big check from this, if that day ever comes, that's literally the first thing I'm getting, and I'm gonna do the same thing you did. He can drive it. 
but he can't have it. But I want to make sure that we get one back in the family. Man, I uh, my dad grew up rough. He um, and this will lead into you know the way I was raised and why you know why I became the person I am. But my dad had uh, I mean he he said when he was seven years old, uh, his dad walked down their family. Um, my my grandmother, my abuelita, she was from uh, Spain. She grew up in Mexico City. And in Mexico, there's only two classes of people. There's there's the upper and lower. And you either ring a bell for service or you answer the bell. And my grandmother, she rang the bell. Um, and so when she fell in love with a gringo, my granddad, uh, he knocked four kids out with her and then he left her high and dry. She didn't know how to cook. She didn't know how to clean. She was, you know, she didn't know what to do. Um, so my dad uh, remembers his dad leaving at seven. And um, he... Uh, Man, it, that she she did the best she could. My dad had to lie at 14 years old about his age so he could go get a job at Jack in the Box down the street and bring home a check for the family after school. Um, he wanted to quit football one time, and my grandmother, my abuelita, she told him, she said, she said, oh, why do you want to quit? She said, he says, because they're picking on me. And he, she said, she said, oh, it's too tough for you? She said, you either go back to practice or you wear that dress. And my dad chose to wear the dress, and she made him walk around the neighborhood. Getting, he got in several fights because of it. Um, so my dad grew up tough. Uh, my, my dad's stepdad, um, years later, they were sitting at the dinner table and he, he mouthed off to my dad's stepdad. You're not my dad anyway. And my abuelita, she took a, a, a fork and stabbed it in my dad's hand on, while he was sitting at the table. My dad had four prongs <laughs> right here and he told that story in front of her. So I know it wasn't bullshit. And, um, then, um, he, uh, it was just the way he was raised, man. He was, he was a tough guy. He, uh, in 1973, he was the most valuable player in the Marine Corps. He got a full scholarship to uh, Rice University because of his football playing for the Marine Corps. He's a running back, and he knew how to take a hit. All four of the brothers, my dad's brothers, they all played football, and all four of them will tell you that my dad was the meanest and the toughest out of all of them. My Uncle Billy was number two in the state of Texas in 1981 for bodybuilding. My Uncle Paul uh, was so good at football that he was actually cast as Dennis Quaid's stunt double in the movie Everybody's All-American. Um and so they all played football, but they all said, don't mess with Jim. Don't mess with James. James is mean. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was my dad, man. I remember when we would get in trouble as a kid, that same trailer, my mom would, you know, I lived in a time where if you got in trouble at school, you got a spanking from the principal. You got a, you know, a paddle from the principal. And then when you got home and the principal would find out, your mom would find out that you got a, a paddle from the principal, she'd spank you. And then she'd give you those famous words, wait till your dad gets home. And, uh, so then I, my brother and I, man, we would, you know, give my mom fit sometimes going to bed and it was nothing for my dad to, to be on. He'd own his, own his own forklift company and he would come home from work at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And he would literally like come in our house. We knew we were in trouble before he even walked in the door because my mom had already told, threatened this. And so he'd come in and he'd go to the other end of the trailer. And then we heard the footsteps coming down the hall. We knew we were getting it. And he flicked the light on and said, get up. And we knew what that meant. My brother and I would get up two years apart. We were seven and nine at the time, I believe. And um, we would get up, we'd put our shorts and our shoes on. And my dad would pay, uh, run us around the trailer park. It was a circle. And he would run us around the trailer park in the family station wagon, uh, singing Marine Corps cadence out the window. And we had to sing it back to him at 1030 at night um until he thought we were tired and we'd go back to the trailer and go back to bed <laughs> there, there's something and like, i don't i don't care what these new helicopter parents or these sensitive folks say there's something special about being raised that way like I, oh yeah 
I like I I was I don't think I was ever raised that hard. Now I've had to cut my own switch and stuff like that, but I've never had to run around a trailer park with a with a wagon following me around. But like <laughs> I think that there's something about that that just speaks for the kind of person you are the rest of your life and how you handle situations. And you can just it just seems like to me the people that were raised hard that you're just so good at overcoming and you're also good at seeing just how beautiful things are even when they're bad to me. You know, I, I I think that that can lead to it. I also think that it, it makes you cynical. Uh, it can make it, it if you let it beat you down. Uh, I remember being raised that way. Um, my dad found Jesus when I was seven. So it, like his dad walked out when he was seven. My dad found Jesus when I was seven. And so he quit drinking, smoking, cussing, cold turkey. The only thing he couldn't quit was his temper. <laughs> so I remember my uh, my mom, my my I had a younger brother and sister and my my job for them was whenever my dad and mom would get in a fight, mom would steer the fight away from the bedroom or from wherever we were in the house. Usually my mom would say, go sit on the couch in the living room. So I would go take my brother and sister and I'd sit on their couch and hold the hand. And, you know, my mom would usually steer the fight to the uh, kitchen or something like that. And I remember um, one of the times I did that from seven to 13, when I was 13 years old, I got up off the couch and I said, I can't take anymore. And uh, I remember I walked into the, um, the room um into the kitchen now we lived in an old 1903 farmhouse my the uh from the living room to go to the kitchen you had to walk through the old dining room which at the time we had converted to my bedroom because i was getting older and i didn't want to share room with my brother anymore so when you walk through that room there was a four by four post bed with two by six rails on the side and a one by four is holding up a piece of plywood that was my box spring and a mattress on top of that and i remember um walking through there and into the kitchen and my mom was up against the fridge and I looked at dad and said, dad, you, you're not going to touch her again, put her down. And I mean, I was no bigger than this, uh, than a mic stand. And, um, dad looked at me and said, what'd you say to me? And he came rushing at me. I remember seeing my mom's feet hit the floor and, and he came rushing at me and he wrapped me up with that perfect football form. I told you about a minute ago. And we went into the bedroom and he, we crashed into my bed and, and fell through it and broke it. And I remember I was laying there and couldn't breathe. Uh, all the air was out of my lungs and I'm just sitting there trying to breathe. But I remember thinking in my head, it was kind of cool too because I was a huge WWF fan at the time, and so, <laughs> so I was like, I was like, you know, it, I guess I don't know if that's where the hard-headed things came from. <laughs> isn't it crazy how we rationalize our trauma? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As you can tell, I got a wrestling belt behind me. I'm sitting here thinking the same thing right now. I was like, you know what? That sounds like some WWF stuff. I noticed the w the NWO belt, man. That was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a like eighties, nineties wrestling fanatic. I don't like the new stuff, but you give me a documentary or whatever on any wrestler from back in that time period. And I'm watching it and I am engulfed. And I watched, I turned it on for my kids years ago. We came home from somewhere and, and I happened to be home off the road and, and it was like a Monday night and I turned on USA and uh raw was on and I watched three minutes of it. And it's, the you, you can catch up not watching it 10 years down the road it's just different characters you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so i got i got back into I, I yelled up to the kids i was like come down here watch this and and i got all my kids hooked on it we've we've been to wwe events I, my daughters were sitting side ringside screaming at somebody oh it's, it's great man <laughs> uh we we had to do some shows um i can't remember the guys doc uh is it doc galloway uh he's a bigger dude I can't remember um what their names are. We we've got a, a fella around here that means a whole lot to me. He's got cerebral palsy. 
and he's got one of the best stories you could ever hear about him starting the wrestling team where we're from. Like literally this guy, he couldn't wow. play. I'll give you the, just a little bit about it. The not, not to take anything away from you, but Matthew Burton was upset that he couldn't play any sports growing up because he had cerebral palsy. The only thing in the state of Georgia they'll allow you to do is wrestling. So this young man against all odds, like petitioned all these people got the stuff signed and everything to where he got the wrestling program started where we're from years after I had left school. And then he wasn't very good at it, but nobody cared because he was, he was the heart and soul of it. So even the first year that they made like the playoffs to go to wrestling, he was over 30 that year. And he went to his coach. It's what a big heart this dude has. He went to his coach and said, I'm not, I'm not going to compete at state because of, um, I don't want to let the team down or whatever. And they were like, you can kiss our ass. Like, you're, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here without you. So um, he's a big wrestling fan. And we had him in the studio not long ago. And these guys from WWE came and did a show probably about two years ago. And they walked in and surprised him. And he went ape shit. And I, I know there's still good guys out there with the wrestling and everything now. It's just yep. I, I can't get into it like I used to. I wish I could. I wish me and my daughter could sit down and watch it. But she – she does not give two dams. So <laughs> I get, I, w- I wish we could, I wish I could do that. Like your family does. Man. I, you know, it's, it, we've been through our ups and downs. Uh, my kids, you know, unfortunately they, they, um, they saw, they saw a lot. They, they missed a lot for me growing up because I mean, we were traveling during their younger years, you know, I was, um, I was Jason Michael Carroll. I was with Arista Records at the time, you know, when they were they were being, you know, molded into into the people they are now. And I've got great kids, but um after that situation with my dad, uh well, that's actually the kind of catalyst that that years later a friend of mine had written a poem about child abuse and I, I read it and and I was like, Man, that's that song hit hard. It reminded me of some things I'd forgotten about years later. And um I remember leaving the house that night and thinking, man, if I could write a song like that and get this out, maybe that's that, that therapy I was talking about. I hadn't written a song in a while and maybe that was it. So I, uh, I remember going back and, and kind of talking myself out of it. Cause I, the more I, the more I tried to sit down and focus on it, the more I thought nobody wants to hear this anyway. Yeah. So I wound up, um, kind of putting it out of my head and, uh, we drove back from North Carolina back to, uh, Texas where we were living at the time we had moved there. Uh, me and my ex-wife with our, then um i think it was uh we had just had our third child and um i uh i remember i sat there and i have done wine watching tv after a trip like that and i remember i sat there and there was a story on the news that had something similar to do with that and i said man somebody somewhere is trying to get me to write this so i i literally sat down and started putting pen to paper and wrote the first verse and course in in a week and a half and i was like man this is coming together you know it's slowly but surely i said god it's you know i wish it were faster and and he showed me because uh um it took me two years to finish it to get it to where i wanted to i just i didn't like the way the story was coming around and and i remember the the first time that i wrote the words Alyssa lies with jesus i didn't i didn't realize that was that's where it was headed yeah i just i was i was writing down things that rhymed and, and trying to navigating the story the way i thought and, and literally when i said that it was like wow and then um, that led to me getting my record deal with Arista. We, uh, I wound up having a manager. We moved back 
when I was living in Texas at the time, uh, about 2004 at this point, my uh, ex-wife had already moved back to North Carolina with the kids and she told me she wasn't coming home. Uh, every two weeks, every, every, every two months there in Texas at the time, uh, she would say, Hey, I want to go back and I want to go back home to my parents. And I would tell her, look, I can't afford it to take off work. I was, I was working two jobs and a full-time band and we were really climbing the ranks in Houston pretty quick. And within a two year time frame, we were the, we were playing the Houston chili cook-off. We were making a big name for ourselves already. And, um, she'd say, okay. And, you know, about a week later, there's be a knock at the door and I'd open it. And it's her mom and dad. We're here for Candace and the kids. Oh, oh, okay. They pack up my family and they take off to North Carolina. And so then I'd sit there, you know, and about a week or two later, she'd say, we're ready to come home. And I'd say, well, can they not bring you back? They came and got you. Well, we'll stay here till you can. So then I had to find a day in between, you know, two jobs and a full-time band that I had a day off and I would drive 18 hours back to North Carolina from Houston get spend that evening with my family or, or whatever friends I hadn't seen in forever get up the next morning with screaming kids and typically a screaming ex-wife or a wife <laughs> then and and we would uh drive back to uh, Houston in one day so I could only you know miss one day of work and um that's what we did the entire time we were together I remember when she left the last time she said I'm not coming back and at that point, I was working at a bar. I was opening a bar every morning and I was counting in the drawers and my staff would come in at around 10, 11 o'clock. And I remember I'd sit there. I got really good at drinking whiskey and doing that touchscreen 11 ball machine. And I remember I there were moments, there were days when I'd wake up and I wouldn't, I'd be in my bed at the, the trailer I lived in in Houston. And I had no clue how I got there. And my keys were on my counter. My car was in my driveway. And I'm like, there's no way in hell I drove. And turns out my staff was loading me in their car. One would follow in my car. They'd get there. They put me in my bed in my house. And then they'd go and back to the bar and pick up the other car and go home. And they, I did that for six months. And I literally, there was a thunderstorm outside that uh, I remember the power went out. My fan went off and that's what woke me up. <laughs> and uh, when I... Uh, was sitting there and I heard the rain beating against the side of that trailer. And the trailer felt like it was shaking. I remember I got up in the middle of the night and went and lit a candle in the living room. And I, something just told me that I needed to write something. And I wrote a song sitting there. And, and again, it was that therapy that no one ever told me how to do, but I just, I've always done it. And, and I wrote a song called broken again. Um, and it, it's, it's about a guy that, you know, they're, you know, the, um sitting in candlelight lost in the thought i'm sitting in candlelight lost in the thoughts in my head and the wind just keeps whispering all of those things that you said you i know when you packed your things that it was all for the best but divorce seems so final and without you then i've nothing left and I remember the guy at the end of it, I didn't know where to go. And he jumps out the window and that's, oh. that's how the song. Ended. And so I, I just, I, I realized at that point that I was going to kill myself if I stayed in Texas um, any longer without my kids and, and my family. And I was going to drink myself to death probably then. So I, uh, I told my band I was leaving and I packed up and I went back to North Carolina and uh, that we didn't, I tried moving in with her. It didn't work out. I, I wound up, um, 
going down to Charleston, South Carolina to do a show. And on the way into town, we were literally going over the bridge into Charleston. Uh, she called me and said, Hey, don't worry about coming home. Your shit's at your mom's. And, uh, um, ironically, all my shit wasn't at my mom. She kept a lot of stuff, including like one of my favorite guitars, but that's a whole nother story. And, um, <laughs> I remember I told that story to Jeffrey Steele when we were hanging out one day in Nashville and, and we wrote a song called home. And the, literally the opening line is I was on my way to Charleston when she called me from Austin and it was a raining. Don't it figure like it always does when things go wrong. And, um, I could listen to you do that all day long. I'm just letting <laughs> you know, like all day long. And uh, we wound up, uh, Alyssa lies when I moved back to North Carolina to be near my babies. Um, my mom, we were playing a show in Greensboro, North Carolina. I got hooked up with another band that I used to play with a lot of those guys before. And my mom was like, hey, I know you're going to be at a show Thursday night. I know you're, it's late. I know that you're not getting back to the hotel till late. And she was right, about 4 a.m. And uh, she said, I know you don't want to do Nashville Star or American Idol. I said, no, I don't. She's like, but Jason, you'd be so good at us. And mom, I don't care. I said, I, I've, I've, I'm already in a band. I've got my path figured out. And she said, well, okay. And then she hung up the phone and she called me back and she said, I know you're not getting in bed till late, but I signed you up for this thing. It's at the mall. Go audition for it. It's a local American Idol contest called Give Me the Mic. Do it for your mother. Well, the line started at 730 the next morning. I got in bed at 4 a.m. So I had to drive an hour from Greensboro. So you do the math. And yeah. uh Wind up going to do the show, wind up getting on the show, wind up winning the show. Uh, and the um the the prize for winning the show was auditioning for record labels in New York City. Now, I'd never been to New York City before, so I did get to see the Statue of Liberty. It was pretty awesome. But um, it really was like I went up there, the hotel they put us in was shady as hell. There was drug deals going on in the hallway. I did not feel safe. It was crazy, man. And uh, it's different when you go to New York and there's drug deals going on the hallway, but your boys can do drugs out in the yard. And you're like, all right, you know. And uh, man, I remember getting there and going and auditioning, and the elevator was broken, the building that I had to go audition in. So I remember I had to climb seven flights of stairs. When I got up there, I opened the door and looked like an FBI interrogation room. There was one light in the center of the room shining down in the middle of the room in a chair. And I walked up and, and they said, go and have a seat. And I could not see the people talking to me. There were silhouettes. And I sat down and the guy goes, go ahead and play something. So I had a guitar and I played a few of my songs. And when I got done with the second or third song, the guy looked at me and goes, we really like country dog, but we can't help you. <laughs> and uh, so I did not, um, I didn't get anything from that show except for going to New York City. And when I got back, a guy was watching it to make fun of a friend of his on it. And he introduced me to Don Gaiman, who produced Hootie and the Blowfish, John Mellencamp, Tracy Chapman, R.E.M., the list goes on. And we went down to Charleston because he was talking to Hootie and the Blowfish about their new record, Looking for Lucky, at the time. And uh, he, when I played Alyssa Lies for him, he looked at me and said, let's go to Nashville and get a record deal. Hell, dude, I didn't even realize you were on Idol. I'm not a big Idol person anyway, but I, did, I didn't even realize. Like, I've just always known you as i wasn't no i wasn't on american idol i, I boycott i didn't really boycott those shows i just did i was in a band i didn't want to be on them this was a local american idol contest oh okay okay, okay 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 fox, fox did it across the country gotcha, yeah, gotcha. And, yeah yeah when you said you won it i was like you meant the competition that day is i just yeah. mis i misunderstood what you had said it was a local competition i think it went six weeks long it was like june and july when they aired the shows but we did all the filming for it like in the first two weeks yeah, I uh I don't like those shows for several reasons. I just 
I'm a, I'm a big person into uh, I think that talent should always win. Like it shouldn't be all the other things. It shouldn't be what you look like. It shouldn't be your popularity or anything. Like if you're the most talented, if you're the best songwriter, if you're the best singer, that should be what is what's out there. Not just because it's, I don't know, just because they think they can sell it or market it. I don't, I don't much care for that. Yeah. And that's, I'm not like a big, it, that like seems like they put, I've got a lot of friends that have done it and that seemed to be, you know, their avenue of getting picked up. I mean, look, Morgan Wallen did it. You know, yeah. you know, um, Carrie Underwood, uh, she was a label mate of mine at Arista. You know, that's how she she blew up. Um, Scotty McCreary is a hometown guy here uh, in near Raleigh. Uh, he That's how he did it, you know. Uh, I remember before he left to go audition for American Idol, he opened for us at the Long Branch, one of the last shows we did there. And he goes, man, I'm thinking about doing this uh, – doing a show American Idol. And I was like, go for it. And my mom had been begging me to do it before then. And I was like, and that just wasn't my thing. But when he told me, I was like, man, good luck. Yeah. You know, and he, he actually opened for us that before he, right before he went off an audition, that was pretty cool. Speaking of that, I think me and you have a, a good buddy in common that was on there. Cameron Havens. Oh man. Tell I wrote a song. A, with tell me there's a sweeter person in the world than Cameron Havens. There is not man. And his story is amazing. Oh, dude. Yes. Um, but the tell you what, Cameron is one of those guys that he he's never met a stranger. You know, you don't I can't if we ever went to a big city, I wouldn't leave him alone because I just don't th I don't think he's cut to make it out of there. <laughs> you know? the, the first show that me and him ever did together. Well, I saw him play at the local. And every time I go to either the local or to Live Oak, if I have a mutual friend amongst somebody, they're like, hey, we want to introduce you to Josh and get you on their show or whatever so as soon as i walk in my buddy uh who's like my big brother lee tucker is like i'm gonna go up to cameron and i'm gonna ask him to play the the one last breath song and one last breath and yeah. and uh, missing right here Whew. yeah and i was like okay that's cool i didn't know cameron at the time i'm sitting there and i've got a drink in my hand and i always judge a song by two things jason one, if it makes me want to put another drink in my hand, and a two, if it makes me cry. That's how I know that it is a good song. I'm a crybaby. I'm tenderhearted as hell. And when he told yeah. the story behind the Last Breath song, I'm telling you, I, I was like, I've got to talk to him as soon as he gets off. And then he told me a whole lot more of it, and we did a couple shows together. Um, I brought him down to making to play at some of the places that we helped book and all this kind of stuff. And he's just somebody that I just – He's an amazing little dude, man. He's just a sweetheart. Dude, he's 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 a good guy. Um and 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 you know a hell of a songwriter. Oh yeah. You know, um we we wrote one uh a couple weeks ago that I thought was pretty cool. It's, I'm not going to play the whole thing for you, but it's it's like um You can play as much as you want to. I do not care. <laughs> we were talking about um you know, my my wife has grounded me from watching the news. Um because I get so angry <laughs> watching the news. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it's, it's, I'll say the same thing. A lot of my veteran friends say that this isn't the, this isn't the country I signed up to fight for. And that's crazy, you know? And, um, so we wound up writing about the news that day and it was kind of funny, but, uh, we wrote this thing and it's, um, uh, watching TV, it's easy to think we're too far gone. And the good book says that we ain't too far off. 
Some madman sitting with his hand on a button, hell bent on turning us all into nothing. Right now, sitting next to you with your hair down, cuddled on the couch with my arms around you. Ain't nothing gonna beat this view. So if the stars fall, the mountains crumble and heaven calls. With the two of us here like this girl, if that's the way the world ends, that's fine by me. Man, just man, man, that's Cameron and I. He's such a good writer, man. I love writing with that kid, dude. You, I just, I love the little fella. You have such a unique voice. Like it's, it's to me when I dig into an artist and when I like them, there's a uniqueness to them about it that you just can't find nowhere. To like how you can say somebody's trying to sing like Keith Whitley, or you can say that somebody's trying to sing like George or whatever you can't compare you to nobody. And that's a great thing. Like you just, Thank your you. voice is your voice. I've never heard your voice before anybody close to it. <laughs> Man. Thanks. I appreciate it. I remember uh, when Alyssa lies came out, um, people were telling me all the time that it, uh, they were like, Hey man, I love your song voices. Cause they were comparing Chris Young Chris and I Young, together. Not even close. Yeah. Not even and, close. Uh, and dude, it was kind of funny. Cause Chris and I were signed to the same Sony umbrella. He was on Columbia and I was at Arista. So, um, yeah. So even though we were competing, Chris and I, you know, I, I remember I wasn't sure if Chris liked me or not. Um, and, uh, and when I left the label, we really didn't talk about anything, you know, what can I, and, and I'll get into why I left and all that stuff in a little bit, but, um, so I wasn't sure if he liked me or not. And I remember well, I had some health scares, uh, about three years ago and I posted about them online and I did a show at live Oak about two years ago. And when I got there, maybe a year and a half ago. And when I got there, Chris was there and he came, I mean, he came straight up to me. He goes, Jason, you okay? I was like, yeah, man, I'm all right. Wow. What's going on? He goes, no, I, I saw you've been sick. And dude, I, I was like, man, thank you so much. And he's, I've been praying for you, man. And I just, that was very nice of him, dude. So, um, so yeah. I guess that squashed the, my, my if if I was concerned he didn't like me or not. <laughs> he he's one of those guys that I have followed like you that I have I like so much of his stuff. Mm -hmm. He he's one of those I have no connection with whatsoever. Like I knew Vaden knew you and Cameron knew you and everything. He's one of those that I I think he probably has a very unique story from the outside looking in and would like to you yeah. know talk to him one day. But when what I'll say, do what. He's a Texas boy. Yep. Y'all's Texas ones are special. I, I, I'm from South Georgia, but if there's one other place I would fit in in this world, I feel like it would be Texas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I This whole time I've been trying to figure out what why your voice resonates so much, and it hit me right then, like when I was thinking about Alyssa Lies, is you've got how some guys don't want to listen to sensitive. Yours is a very manly voice, but you can hear the sensitivity in it. Oh, like, well. I really, yeah. I mean, I mean that in the mo the best way possible. I, there's there's some songs that I won't listen to because I know that it's, and I like sad songs. I don't like happy songs. I won't listen to a happy song. People probably <laughs> think I'm the most depressed person on the planet because if you get in my truck, you're gonna hear the saddest, best storytelling country songs of all time. But it's never like anybody whining. If that makes sense, yeah. like the, the, I don't like the whining stuff. Your mm -hmm. stuff. 
is sensitive and heartfelt, but it's manly at the same time. Man, I appreciate it. Uh, so when my dad found Jesus, I don't know if I think I told you this story or not, but there was uh, one of the songs. My brother and sister really didn't didn't really kind of miss it as much because they weren't as old. But I remember when I was seven and my parents took away everything that was secular music. The only thing we could listen to was gospel music growing up and and even gospel music without drums. Like I, we the, anything with drums in it was was of the devil. I, I grew up like the water boy. Okay. And uh I remember um uh my uncle would come back from Fort Bragg and he'd he'd stay with us a little while and he'd say, Well now, Jason, don't tell your parents what I'm about to do. And my uncle would turn it to a rock and roll station. And uh I mean there were songs like um and and obviously I've I've I kind of covered the song at my shows, but because I, I I love this stuff, but it just didn't seem fair they took it away to me, like uh oh I I just died in your arms tonight. It must have been something you said. I just died in your arms tonight. Oh, I just died in your arms tonight. It must have been some kind of kid. I should have walked away. I should have walked away. Yeah, and I just grew up with that, you know. And uh, so the first time people would come up to me when I got in my first band and they'd say, play George Jones. I'm like, who? Because I, I was still playing. And I wasn't allowed. To, I know that's sacrilegious, bro. But uh, I remember the, the first time that I could get on stage and, you know, do the. Um, he said, I love you till I die. And dude, when I did that, dude, people uh, people started cheering, and I was thrilled because I finally was playing catch up to to good country out there instead of the, and and not that the stuff we weren't playing as a cover band was good, but um, but man, I I remember the first time I could do that, and then being fortunate enough to go to Nashville and and become friends with George uh, before he passed away. Uh, I was at his birthday party, uh, his 80, 80th birthday party, I believe, and um. Man, I just, George and Nancy were always good to me, and I I was I was fortunate enough to say he's a friend of mine before he passed. So uh, it was really cool to be able to do that. But that's something that I wouldn't have guessed growing up the way I did. You know, dude, that is insane. I've recently got to be friends with uh, Georgette. Um, and oh, she, yeah. and she's done the show, and oh. she, she would just she told all the stories, and I would imagine George would have liked you just from the little bit I've talked to you because she she kind of broke down what George liked and new artists and what he didn't and what he stayed away from and who he wanted around. And it just, yeah. it just seems like he would have resonated with you, man. I appreciate it. Um, By the way, I'm very envious. I am extremely envious that you got to go to his birthday party. That's it. I missed him. It'll be one of the saddest things. I missed him. The last run he did coming through Macon, Georgia. I'm right below Macon, but I was young and I didn't appreciate him at all. Like I, I liked, he stopped loving her today, just like everybody else. But I didn't appreciate everything else yet. It's like I always yeah. tell people this with uh, Willie Nelson. I thought Willie Nelson was horrible until I turned 30 years old. And then I got I, – I love his voice now. But I would be turned off by his voice when I was younger to where I didn't want to listen to him. And then you're like, no, this is what's so great about him and his songwriting in his songs it took me for a long time to get into willie and now i'm it's just when it's like you don't know what you're missing until you find out what you're missing is what i'm getting to 
Oh man. You know, and, uh, so when I finally got back into, you know, and in, into the band and things were starting to work out and, and I come back from Texas, I wound up, um, uh, getting involved with that show, winning the show, I met Don Game, and he said, let's go to Nashville and get a record deal. When we went to Nashville, we auditioned in July of 2005. We hit probably six major labels all in like a two-day period. By the time we got to the second day and the, probably the fourth or fifth label, they said, yeah, we know that you were at so-and-so yesterday and so-and-so yesterday. And I, and we're like, okay. They said, you're from Rock World, aren't you? They were talking to Don and my, my manager at the time. And they go, yeah. They said, that's not how we do things in Nashville. But something must have worked because we wound up, we left home. We left uh, Nashville, wound up going to, uh, coming back home. I went back out on the road, was doing some shows. And we were expecting a call from Sony saying we got the deal and nothing happened. And we're like, well, that that doesn't seem right. We 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 auditioned. Joe Galani actually got up at the audition and came up and started speaking to me. And, and Jim Catino said, that doesn't happen. You know, that's that's a big thing. So thank god don gaiman was on on board because he actually called joe directly he said hey joe you we all felt that what 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 happened and my manager had gone behind our backs and was like well um we want we want to be we want to be signed in and next week and we want the record to come out in six weeks and we want to be a, on a full tour and and uh joe told don he's like we can't follow that schedule yeah and don's like that's not what we're looking for and joe said well if you can you know buckle up and kind of mold to our schedule then then we'll sign him and don said yeah so because of don game and i want to getting my record deal um same manager that uh after he after we got signed we signed our record deal on december 17th 2005 and after we got signed there was brad paisley come through with sarah evans and raleigh and my manager, the same guy who almost lost me the record deal, uh, he was still my manager at the time. Again, we didn't have a product out with Sony yet. Uh, he went to the Brad Paisley concert, got tickets from Sony, wound up going to the show and wound up uh, interrupting Brad's meet and greet. And I heard a story from one of my record reps that, and, and the thing is, we'd open for Brad and Raleigh at the Long Branch six times. Brad, I used to do the show. Somebody would send, Brad would send somebody out after the show to go get me. And bring me to the tour bus and ask how how I thought his show went. Yeah. So Brad and I were friends, and that my manager went and busted up on Brad's meet and greet and said, "Um, uh, hey, I work with Jason Michael Kira. We're we're label mates of yours now." And the rumor has it that Brad looked at that record and said, "I'll never work with Jason or his manager Woo. because of that." And, and to be fair, when I was at Arista, Brad never acknowledged me hardly. Yeah. So and that that was kind of hurtful because I mean he was one of those people I, I used to look up to. You know, so um, it is what it is. But I, I wound up firing that manager um, before before a list lot before day it was the right move. Yeah. Well, I've I've had to learn, dude. Uh, there's you just got to play. You got to play it different with these personalities and with anybody like in this industry. The first time my show ever got into the top 100 in the world, it was the same week that uh. Another one of our friends, Vaden knows them, that they were doing the say something we're saying rounds back in the day at Live Oak. And they had Ashley yep. McBride playing there. Well, um, one of the things that that I really got in trouble for when I worked in radio was I would play a lot of Ashley McBride, a lot of Brandy Carlisle. Uh, I'm down here in the I'm down here in the Bible Belt, and people didn't really resonate with their music. But I was like, This is this is so good. Like, this is great. I don't understand why you guys aren't digging it, right? 
And so one of my friends introduced me to Ashley after the show. I was drunk. I was talking her head off to the point where she was nice and friendly as she could be. Like she could not have been nicer, but somebody ended up having to come up to me and I didn't know the etiquette. I really didn't to where it was even like when Vaden asked me to come back to their house afterwards that they were going there, Ashley and all them going there. My buddy was even like, look, if this is going to be the, the people you work around, you can't do this. Like you, you can't, yeah. you have to know how to play it. And now two years later, I'm invited to a lot of places because I learned how to act, but you rub one person the wrong way. And you, oh, yeah. can, you can get, you can not just screw yourself, but you can screw your whole circle. So we wound up getting to Arista. And, uh, when we left, when we were there, um, we made the record. The first single people don't know this, but our first single at, at uh, off waiting in the country was not Alyssa lies. There's a song called Looking at You. And, um, you know, some people like staring at the sunset and some prefer a tropical view and some like gazing at the stars and the moon. But I like looking at you. And uh, so that was our first single. And we were going to country radio across the country. And everywhere we'd go, they would say, they'd spin looking at you so we'd get the spins. And then they'd say, uh, can you play one live for us? And we play Alyssa Lies. And I remember uh, those phone banks would light up before we were done. And I remember some stations we left, we were getting calls from my re- my record rep was getting calls 30 minutes after we left the station because people were calling in about that song still. Yeah. And I remember it was the craziest thing. We were on our way into Sacramento, California. Uh, we were on our way somewhere somewhere to California. It wasn't quite Sacramento. Sacramento's coming in with the, the next story for uh, Living Our Love Song. But we were on our way into California, and I remember um, uh, we got a call from the label, and uh, we'd already been visiting a few stations out that way. And they said, Jason, we thought we had a plan for this thing, but this thing is blowing up right here, um, and we can't control it, so we're not going to try to. We're going to go with Alyssa Lies as your first single. And I was I was a little nervous about putting out a ballad first because I've always considered myself a rocker. You know, I modeled mm-hmm. a lot of my stage show after Aerosmith, you know, and um, I, the long hair was, you know, and, and I've got scars from my mics that I've had for years. And I, I mean, I was, it's, I was like, oh, you sure? And we went with it. And and I was I was a little nervous, but also relieved because my record rep from, from the West Coast, uh, I love her to death, Lori Hardigan. She's with Curb Records now. Lori's amazing very creative type Lori got this bright idea for the song looking at you which is what we were promoting out there in california at the time to do uh acoustic shows uh to meet the fans for the radio stations at petting zoos get it looking at you e-w-e-e so so we wound up going around and that wasn't good enough Lori (laughs) went to the adult store and bought a blow-up lamb so there was a blow up sheep on our tour bus with holes everywhere. <laughs> now you can it's from the adult store. So Lori, dude, she brought this thing on the bus, and I'm like, please don't bring that out. And she carried it under her arm every radio station we went into. And we wound up using the holes for the Sharpies that we collected on the road. <laughs> so there was Sharpies stuffed in this thing sheep everywhere. And uh uh I remember so we wound up going and doing this. We started doing this, uh, you know, thing where we would go in and play looking at you at petting zoos. 
And uh, Lori wound up saying, well, um, when they switched gears, she gave the lamb away to the last radio station that we went to that was still promoting looking at you at the time. And so thank God the lamb was not on the tour bus anymore because that was uh, that was definitely something unique that I wasn't sure, you know, if I'd be able to uh, live down people, people seeing the lamb, the the adult store sheep on our tour I, bus. I'm sure there's a lot worse on others. I think the lamb is probably more on the PG side than what most people have. But, you know, Alyssa Lies became the fastest rising single in country music history besides Achy Breaky Heart 15 years prior. Dude, I can imagine it's. It's one of those songs. Uh, I know you haven't had a chance to listen to any or uh, any of our shows or anything, but I I try to teach all these young artists that we work with, especially from my area. I'm the only studio that's like this in Georgia that wants young artists to come in here and uh, sit down and write, help them with their social media, help them just like grow or whatever. And then I take those artists. Like we're not contract, not a manager. I don't get no money, nothing like that. It's just if I believe in you, I want to help you progress. Cause this is all I do for a living. It's just this right here, but I'm big on morals over money for one. But the second thing is legacy. Like I like the artists that write the songs that when you hear it 20 years later, it's still as powerful as it was the day it came out. And I could imagine Alyssa lies forever is going to be one of those all time songs that no matter when you hear it, where you're at, it's going to strike a nerve that even if it's, you know, if, if it hasn't got any radio play in years, if it has it, that it's still going to be when that person hears it, it touches them in a way that 99% of the songs that's ever been written can never do. And I, I think, I think it'll always be special. I think that's to have that in your bag is just something that you can always just hold your head hella high to. You know, when we first came out with it, um, we started going around the country and promoting that song. So we went, we went from East to West. And then when they switched gears on us, we went back East, back West to East uh, touring again, promoting that song. And there were songwriter events that I'd go to, or there was acoustic shows we go to. One of them was, we did a show in Illinois for Walmart. And we did a lot of Walmart signings at the time. We'd go show up to Walmart and play acoustic in their electronic section. Then we'd sign every CD they had there, you know, and, um, and uh, one meet and greet after one of the walmart performances uh you know people come up to me and tell me how much the song meant to them a lot of them were in tears uh, but there was one family in particular in illinois they came up to me and that all of them were in tears and the man came up first usually the the father was in the back you know bringing up the rear of the family and uh um this guy was in tears and he looked at me and he goes thank you for Alyssa lies and i said oh well thank you for listening sir and he goes no i was the abuser and he said that Ooh. standing there with his family all and his family's in tears beside him. He said, hearing your song realized, made me realize that I needed to be different and dude, just uh, wow. I mean, you know, that's, that's more than I could have asked for thinking that's more than I could have thought or dreamt up when I, when I wrote that song, you know, dude, that's, oh, that, there's just nothing you can say about that. That's just, that's beautiful. I mean, it really is. It's, it's where if you have the power to change somebody through music or through whatever you're doing in life. I think that's what you're supposed to do. A lot of us get confused about what our purpose in life is, and we're always looking for it. But I think sometimes our purpose is us. I think we take all the the bad or whatever we could come up with that we've been through or our trauma or whatever you want to say, 
And if we turn it into something that helps somebody else, I think that's why we're supposed to be here. Yeah. I think, I think I've been dealing with that a lot lately with the, the, some of the latest changes in my life. And I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute, but, um, so going back on tour, we went from Alyssa lies, um, again, fastest rising thing, single country music history besides AQ Breakyard 15 years prior. I was pretty proud of that, uh, to, um, the record was done. We were on our way back into California. Now, this is where Sacramento comes into play. And I remember we played in Sacramento, California. We were on our way back in, in, into town that night. We were visiting the radio station KNCI the next morning. And I remember um, my guitar player, Tim Galloway, came up to me and he goes, Jason, how do you write a song? And I I, I was I thought it was a weird question. I'm like, uh, man, and I've said this not being a smart ass, but I really thought, I was like, dude, I said, maybe go ask a songwriter, you know, and he laughed. He's like, didn't you write a list of lies? And I said, and and I intentionally, what I meant was there's so many good writers in Nashville. Yeah. Like it, it's at your fingertips. Go ask a good songwriter. And he said, well, you wrote a list of lies. And I said, yeah, he goes, he, he said, well, um, how did you write it? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of, you know, he was noodling on the guitar. Yeah. And I remember as he's noodling, I said, you're not hearing anything with what you're doing right now? And he goes, no. And I said, I said, well, let me tell you what I'm hearing. And the moment I said that, I, my mind went back to 2004 when I moved back to Texas, moved back from Texas. And I wasn't sure. I mean, if I was going to, if I stayed there, I was going to drink myself to death. And I wound up getting in my band. And there was a girl that I hadn't seen in seven years at that point. Her parents sent her away to college to get her away from me. They found out I was a, she was dating a Marine slash musician slash slash slash. <laughs> and um, we were playing a show in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I remember I looked, we were about to hit downbeat. And, and the first song in our set, I didn't make our set list up that night, but we were about to start the first song. And I look at the back of the room and I see her walk in. And I said, I said, hold on a minute, guys. And I jump off stage. I ran to the back of the room. I looked at her. I said, I am so sorry things went the way they did. You never have to speak to me again. I, I I think about you all the time. I hope your life turned out great. I still love you, and I'm sorry. I kissed her on the cheek, got back on stage, and the first song of our set that night went like this right here, and I did not make our set list up, swear to God. This is the first song. Well, I haven't seen you in forever. No, you haven't changed a bit. You didn't think that I'd remember. How could I forget? We sang Bobby McGee on the hood of my car. Made a wish on every star in that clear September sky. One bottle of wine and two Dixie cups. 3 a.m. I fell in love for the first time in my life. Oh, that's something that just don't happen twice. Come on, man. <laughs> That's what my mind went to when my guitar player asked me how to write a song and he was kind of noodling. Yeah. And I went straight to that moment and how she walked back in and I took that chance. And this is what we started writing right after he asked me that and where my mind went to. Baby, when I look at you with your hair falling down and your baby blues stand there across the room. I get so lost in the way you move. 
It makes me reminisce back years ago on a night like this. Teary-eyed as you took my hand. And I told you that I'd be your man. So many things have come. So many things have gone. One thing stayed the same as our love still going strong. Baby, just look at us all this time and we're still in love. Something like this just don't exist between a backwoods boy and a fairy tale princess. People said it would never work out, but living on dreams was shattered all doubts. It feels good to prove I'm wrong. Living our love song. <laughs> Dude. Mm. I, I remember hearing that for the first time. And just, ah. Uh. It's just, I and I, I mean this with all due respect. I had about six of your songs on my own, just downloaded or whatever, right? And right. then when I was telling somebody that you were going to be on the show the other day, there was a song that I knew that I'd heard, I knew that I loved, and when I went to find it, I didn't have it saved, right? So then I forgot several of the other ones just over time i haven't listened to them so i was looking for hurry home and i wanted okay. them i wanted them to hear hurry home but then i stumbled on like two or three more and i just let the albums play and it was just yep. like you you didn't miss like you you didn't miss with whatever you put out so thank you um that that that's another i mean there's stories to all this stuff that's why i asked how much time you had because i've got so many stories with all of this stuff. We uh the next morning we went into KNCI Sacramento. They they we they spent they spun looking at you because it was a song that they were playing for us. Then they went to uh Alyssa Lies and we played that. And then they said, I said, Hey guys, we wrote a new one last night. Uh can we can can I play that for you? And they're like, sure. So we wound up playing uh Living Our Love Song that morning, that the morning after we wrote it, we felt so good about it. I got on the bus. We're all like saying great job in there. And the, the label called me and they said, uh, Jason, do you, uh, do you, how'd the visit go? I said, well, it went great. Yeah. They said, you played a new song in there. I was like, yeah, yeah. They loved it. They said, Jason, we're done with the record. I was like, yeah, I know. They said, you played a new song. I was like, yeah, <laughs> they go, they loved it. I was like, Oh, okay. They said, we've already printed 80,000 copies of, waiting in the country and i went what and they said we've already printed eighty thousand copies and now you've played a hit song that this station wants and we don't have it on the record so we have to go back in the studio and record it and i'm like oh <laughs> and so i got that was my first time getting in trouble with arista was uh <laughs> because i played a brand new song that we were really excited about um and the first the first place we played it that was influential in me that song would not have been on the record had knci in sacramento not fallen in love with that song that morning when i off the cuff said can we play a song we wrote last night dude that's awesome and by the way i'll take as much time with you as you don't have to like i don't care if it goes so long i split it in two episodes i this is this is what the <laughs> listeners want this is what i want 
Like this is, I know when what people are listening to and why they like my show is because it's what I like to listen to. The more you, I don't care. We got all, as long as you got time, brother, I got time. So we left there, uh, living our love song wound up blowing up uh, about the same way. Um, I wound up going and we got the video in St. Pete. Uh, the, the model on that video is a lady named Anna Ayora. She was a actress. She's been in several movies uh, back in the uh, early to mid early to mid 2000s. Um, and uh, she lives in Italy uh, now. I believe she's married and lives in Italy, but uh, she's a sweetheart of a girl. Uh, she's in the Living Our Love Song video. That song with the longest charting single by a breakout artist, 45 weeks. So we went from fastest rising single by a breakout artist, um, Alyssa Lies, to longest charting single by a breakout artist, 45 weeks to Living Our Love Song. And Lee Bryce, that, that record held till Lee Bryce broke that record two years later with Love Like Crazy, which is also mm, a great song. It is a great song. Um, and um, I remember we had just switched our single after living our love song and everything was blowing up the way it was. Uh, we got the Carrie Underwood tour because of that. We got Brooks Nunn and Alan Jackson because of that. Um, and um, we got, we switched to, I could sleep when I'm dead as our new single. Now I wrote, I could sleep when I'm dead with rivers Rutherford and Jim Collins. Uh, I grew up on an 82 acre tobacco farm uh, just outside of Granville County, North Carolina. Um, and I remember when I got there, rivers was on the phone with the Montgomery Gentry boys that morning. Um, he uh, was talking to them about their record, uh, the record that Eddie had written song clouds for. Um, and uh, so he's talking to them. I go in and talk to Jim Collins and I'm, I'm like, Hey man, how's it going? He said, well, tell me about yourself, Jason. I said, well, I have an ex-wife with three kids. I have um, two full-time jobs and a full-time band that I'm trying to get back home. And I'm trying to make it uh, get a record deal in Nashville. And Jim looked at me and he said something to me that I answered the way that I heard those farmers my entire life growing up. Uh, he said, man, when do you sleep? And I said, man, I can sleep when I'm dead. And that's the song we wrote that day. Now, fast forward to um, this is where things got tricky with me and Aristus. So this is where things kind of went downhill for us. I told you I already got in trouble about the living our love song, which was trouble, but it was a good trouble because yeah. it paid off. Again, we broke records with that song. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the problem here then went to, uh, I was in the Marine Corps growing up. Uh, my dad was a Marine. So at 18 years old, I really didn't think that the Marines had anything for me that I'd be scared of. And I wasn't scared of my dad. He was the only person I ever was scared of growing up. And I fist fought him from the time I was 13 till I was 21 and knocked him out. Thought I killed him. Um, I'll get into that in a second. The similarities between me and you is ridiculous. That has literally happened with me and my father. And um, so I wound up um, joining the Marine Corps right out of high school. So I have a very, I've got, a, I've got a passion for uh, the military. Yes, um, my, my Marine Corps, especially hoorah. But uh, I um, wound up, we got to go do a show in Louisville, Kentucky. We, we drove up from Nashville. Um, my record rep at the time, uh, we're going to call her L is all I'm going to call her. I don't want to get in trouble for this, um, <laughs> but we were on our way up there and um, the record rep at the time, L, she was on the way up and she told me that it was a radio station show for winners. Now I'm fine with that. And I love talking to people. So we get there. First thing I do is I go up to the radio station. I say, Hey, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. And they said, Jason, we just, our community just suffered a loss. We appreciate you being here. Um, we lost one of our own in Iraq. And I was like, Oh, wow. 
And they said, that's his fiance over there. And we wanted to do something nice for her. So I went and introduced myself to her. I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you for your service. Thank, thank you for your commitment to our country through losing your, your uh, fiance. And I'm so sorry for your loss. She goes, well, I want to do something nice for his family. Invited all those people. So everybody there, it was not a winner's show. It was a show to bring the community together. Now, do you remember what my single was going up there? Uh, song called yeah. I Can See It's Not Dead. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh. So I yeah. went to my record, and I was very stern. I said, don't you ever effing do that to me again. I don't know if I can say effing on here or not, but yeah. Uh, you, I said, don't you, you can ever say whatever the hell you want to say. Oh, cool. Okay. So I said, don't you ever fucking do that to me again. And she, she said, and she, so I was, I was, I was pissed. I did handle it a little harshly. And I said, and she goes, well, you've got to play the single. I said, I'm not playing the oh, single. Absolutely. Not. And she said, she said, Jason, that the radio station has to hear. I said, I am not playing the damn single. Yeah. And we left there. She was pissed at me and we did not play the single that night. We got in the car. We were on our way back to Nashville driving. You don't think that was an awkward three hour drive. Um, from Louisville, Kentucky. When we got in the car, I got a call from the label saying, Jason, the whole staff's ready to turn on you because of this one woman, L. She went and had the whole staff ready to turn on me because I was not willing to play a song that I wrote that I'm proud of, but I was not going to play it there. And so that was the beginning of the end for me at Arista. That was when the, that was when that stuff started falling. Yeah. That to me, you probably handled it a lot better than I would have. Uh, I, I've been in situations to where anybody who's worked in radio or whatever they know, like there's this certain times you play stuff and there's certain times you pull stuff. And I don't care what some consultant says six, 700 miles away about what I'm supposed to be playing or anything like that. There's this time, there's a time and a place for every song. And yeah. there's, there's just sometimes you need to chill with that. I used to get in trouble for pulling songs all the time when it was like a, when it was an emotional day for some reason, it was yeah. like, we don't, well, this doesn't need to be on radio, but let's add the stuff that does. Yeah, man, that, that was part of it. And then <laughs> there was a song, uh, that was the first, that was the first major issue I had at Arista. And, um, again, L and I'm going to, I'm going to give another guy named, uh, S, uh, L and S did not, um, they were the ones that called me and said the whole staff, the whole staff was ready to turn on me. So now go down to Ocala, Florida, and we're down in Ocala and in Nashville, there's these things called holds, you know, you're familiar yeah. with holds, right? Yeah. When somebody hears a song, an artist hears a song, it's like a gentleman's agreement. Somebody yeah. wants to hear this song, want to record it. So they'll say, you know, I'm going to put the song on hold. The publisher then won't pitch it or let another artist cut it. It's a gentleman's agreement. There's no contract, but you know, until you record your record, whether you record it or not, then that song will be yours until you do or don't. And then it goes off hold and it's yours or it's not. And so there was a song that I wanted and I've been burned by the same artist twice. I'm not going to say his name, but it, rhy it rhymes with Blake Shelton. And, um, <laughs> And, <laughs> yes. and I love Blake. Yes. I love Blake to death. He's he's one of my favorite people. 
But there was one song in particular that every time that we went uh, shopping for songs, I heard this song. I wanted it. And they said, ooh, it's a great song. I don't know why that made it to the list, but Blake has it on hold already. The song went like this right here. He never cut it, but I really think he kept putting it on hold, so I wouldn't. Anyway, the song goes like this right here. <clears throat> she drinks whiskey from the bottle. She's got a tattoo of a gypsy on her suntan skin. Keeps her foot down on the throttle of that 69 Camaro she'll be driving in. She'll probably say her name is Mary Jane or Sue. She'll tell you a thousand lies and you'll believe that they're all true. She's like no woman I've ever known. She loved me wild and she loved me strong until one morning without warning she was gone. She left me standing in the kitchen with a cold heart and a warm Pabst Blue Ribbon. Oh, dude, I dig <laughs> that, son. And so I wanted that song so bad. So that's the reason for this story. We get down to Ocala. We've not even discussed the second record yet. We're still working. I can sleep when I'm dead as a single. And we're doing a guitar end around. If you've ever been to an end around before, for those of you that don't know, at the end, an end around, it's one artist plays, another artist plays, another artist plays, another artist plays. By the end of the night, each artist may get four songs. And so that night, it was us, Jody Messina, Lone Star, and Chris Young. And we were down there. And before we walked in, my buddy, Patrick Davis, that wrote Where I'm From, by the way, um, sent me this song. Now, Patrick said, Jason, I think I wrote a song that's perfect for you. Your dad was a preacher, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, he goes, I think I wrote the songs perfect for you. And so before we went on that night, obviously we had four songs. We played Alyssa Lies, fastest rising single in country music history for Breakout Artist. We played Live in Our Love Song, longest charting single for Breakout Artist country music history. Um, we played I Sleep When I'm Dead, our current single that was still climbing the charts at the time. And then... I played a brand new song and we played where I'm from. Oof. And the reason we played it that night was because I was afraid somebody was going to put it on hold. I'd already been burned twice. So when we left the stage that night, I got a call from the label and they said, Jason show went great. Yeah. Yeah. went great. They said, you played a new song tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. Why? Uh, we haven't discussed the second album, Jason. Oh, Okay. I said, but Blake Shelton. <laughs> so uh, I kind of forced their hand with uh, recording where I'm from. They, the label had no clue about that song. And my buddy Patrick sent it directly to me. And um, that was, uh, that was kind of, I kind of forced their hand, but I'm glad I did. And I'm sure they're glad we did too, because it became my uh, third top 10. Um I know I haven't been on the other side with the record labels and everything, but it just seems like when you would have something that you know is not going to miss, like you, you had to know when you heard where I'm from, it ain't missing. It just seems like they would want you to tease it to the point that there was just more juice behind you. There was more heat behind you. You know, I felt so good about those uh, songs, you know, but sometimes you, you kind of, you kind of wonder what, what their motivation is because and and i think in nashville you run across a lot of what we what people call yes men mm -hmm. uh, because because some people they 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 just feel like they have to say something even though something's working they have to come in they're new to a program and they have to change it or say something so to to stake their claim you know what i mean yeah and um 
my first co-write in Nashville, Tennessee was a song like you're talking about. Why would people turn their back on something that seems like a guaranteed hit, you know? And my first co-write in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, ironically, man, and I was, it was so far out of my league, but I was so grateful for it. Um, was with Radney Foster. Now, for you that don't know out there, Radney, Del Rio, Texas is my Desert Island disc. I will, I want to put that record on. If I'm, no matter what mood I'm in, Del Rio, Texas can get me there or take me out of it, whatever I'm looking for. And for those of you that don't know, Radney had a song called Just Call Me Lonesome, Heartbroken Then Song, Cause I Ain't Got No One Since You've Been Gone. You call me baby, well I've got a new name, I don't need my old one, call me lonesome from now on. And Radney was out of my league, but that day I had a co-write, we're sitting in his basement at his house in his wine cellar, and I'm, I'm sitting there talking to him, and, and it was just, it was like the same week I signed my record deal. And for probably three or four minutes, we're just sitting there looking at each other. Radney's trying to come up with an idea. And all I can get in my head is, oh, my God, this is Radney Foster. <laughs> and, and he looks at me, and I'll never forget this, the, 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 my, my heart sinking into my feet. He grabs his guitar, and he puts it down, and he goes, you know what? Let's come back to it in a minute. Let's go grab a cup of coffee down the street. And I remember thinking, if we walk out of this room, I'm never, he, we're not going to write today. Yeah. And it broke my heart. Cause I mean, I was a huge Radney Foster fan. So I sat there and started doing this right here. And, and Radney goes, what do you, what is, what is you, what are you playing? And I said, man, just something I came up with in the hotel room last night. And he said, he said, whatever that is, keep playing. And so I wound up playing it. And uh, two hours later, we wrote a song that so many people had requested uh at, at live shows because i started playing out live and so i thought i was going to make the record and when it didn't i went to the label and said hey why are we not i said why are we not putting this record out and they said well it holds women in a negative light and i was like what it said it talks about women cheating and i went well women cheat too yeah and they, said, well, they said women won't like it and i went that's funny because at my shows women are the ones that request this song the most the song went like this right here Last night I saw you standing By the window in our room You had your hair down on your shoulders And the moonlight kissing you I could hold your perfect body I just couldn't reach your heart And that fire that burned between us Slowly faded in the dark You're gonna stray And leave me standing alone You're gonna stray Hey, baby, your love's already gone. You don't want to be here. It's perfectly clear, and you think you got it hidden away. Hey. 
I know you're gonna stray. You're gonna stray. Yeah, and that's hot. I don't know <laughs> why they that. Was it ever released at all? That one's on the numbers album. Yeah, after I left Arista, that was one of the songs that I fought for, and uh, we put it on the numbers records. Pretty excited about that one. I am hitting download as we speak then. <laughs> I had never heard the one you had just said to by Radney Foster. Um, oh, do, do yourself a favor. Download the Del Rio, Texas record, the entire album, and, okay. and put it on and go for a walk, man. It's it's uh, went for a ride. Hootie and the Blowfish covered that song. Um, he was black as the sky on a moonless night. Real good with the horses, never reined them too tight. He rolled with the best, hell he rolled with me. But they got it all wrong in that book of history. It wasn't cowboys and ponies, it was horses and men. It wasn't schoolboys and ladies, it was cow towns and sin. And there was blood on the leather and tears in her eyes. He swore at the devil, and then he went for a ride. Oh, dude, that's, oh, that's my Desert Island disc, man. You got to check it out. Dude, I'm, I'm literally downloading it as we speak. <laughs> oh, man. So what, what did it like? What What all happened after that when you, I guess, when you went out, when you wasn't with them anymore? Like, how did life change and all that stuff? So, so then we, when we were getting ready for the second album, um, I remember I was walking through the label one day and, uh, Renee Bell called me up and in the office and she goes, Jason, come here. I said, yeah. She goes, I found this song. There's a guy pitching and he wants a record deal here, but I don't think we're going to sign him, but I want to see if I can get this song for you. Cause I think it's your song. And she had no clue about my story and knew nothing about why this song would connect with me in a way that it did. Um, she played the song for me and the song was called hurry home. Oh, and when she played it for me, I teared up right there in the office and she goes in that good. And she had no clue why that song meant so much to me. Um, when I was a kid, uh, probably two or three years old, my aunt ran away from home. My mom's sister from an abusive husband. Now, what I didn't understand was that she left her kids with that said abusive husband and she disappeared. My uncle served three tours in Vietnam and he won't talk about any of it. The only thing he'll talk about from that entire time was that he met my, he took cover in a firefight in a cave and met my aunt and her family fell in love with her. And what he called 40 years of paperwork brought her back. And I have a four foot, nothing Vietnamese aunt that could cook so well, <laughs> but, um, but, um, my, my uncle tracked his sister, my aunt down to Birmingham, Alabama through post through the postmarks, which is why the song from Blackhawk, um, recognize the writing. On a plain white envelope, I wondered where she'd wind up before she caught a rope. The answer's in a circle with the word love on a stamp. Postmark Birmingham. And that song connected with me, uh, still does it. I'm about to lose it right now. Um, I'm down. I've never heard that one. I've downloaded You're just, you're making my playlist for tonight. Oh, dude, please listen. Um, so my uncle tracked my aunt down to Birmingham, Alabama and lost her trail. Um, 
for years, talking 12 years, maybe guys, every night, my mom felt like her sister was still alive, that she was still out there. So every night we'd say our prayers and every night we'd end our prayers with, and Lord, please be with aunt Jean, wherever she's at. And, uh, I remember when Renee played this song for me, it took me back to one Christmas at my grandmother's house. And again, I'd been praying for my Aunt Jean my entire life. And I was 15 or 16 at the time. I think I was 16. And I remember we walked in the house at Christmas. My grandmother was standing at the stove. The house smelled like sausage biscuits because that's what my grandmother cooked every Christmas. And that was just awesome. My grandfather was sitting in the uh, recliner in his boxer shorts, a wife beater, and a white robe. And his slippers sitting in his recliner watching TV. And I remember the phone rang and I was the closest to it. So I answered the phone and this lady said, hey, can I speak to Francis? I went, Francis? She goes, yeah. And I said, you mean grandmommy? And I remember handing the phone to my grandmother. And watching my grandmother's face go, hello. And just the smile on her face fading to tears coming down her face. Because she was speaking to my aunt that I've been praying for my entire life. And the first time that she'd heard her daughter's voice in 12 years. Now the story doesn't have a happy ending. She she was she's living in Vegas, um, is where she had hidden for the all of her life, and she had cancer. And she was notified that she didn't have but a few weeks to live, so she wanted to see her family. So my grandmother, who was deathly afraid of flying, they drove a road trip to uh, Las Vegas, and she got to see her daughter. And she came home. They said goodbye, and she got to come home. My mom, when she got home from that trip, she packed us all up and we flew to Vegas and I got to meet my aunt in person for the first time that I remembered. And so the first time that I was sitting in um, the office that Renee Bell had and she played that song and I heard, he's been sitting by the phone since she left. But it's time for work. He just can't be late. So he grabs his old guitar. And he plays a couple bars on the machine. And then he softly sings. It doesn't matter what you've done. I still love you. It doesn't matter where you've been, you can still come home. And honey, if it's you, we've got a lot of making up to do. And I can't hug you on the phone, so hurry home. I remember the first time I heard that, it broke me to tears because I remembered that story and remembered... Uh, praying for my aunt every day that she would come home and uh, again didn't have a good a happy ending but we at least got to see her and my mom knows what happened to her and uh, so now she's she's buried in a in a cemetery in Wake Forest uh, about 100 yards from my grandparents and that's you know so your entire uh, life has been a country song like you, your entire life and, like, and uh we're not done <laughs> oh yeah i know i know that's what it's like whenever um I, i'm always big on this with artists if i don't believe what you're singing i don't it, it doesn't matter how good it is like i i get real took back 
I don't have a bad reputation. Uh, but there's some people that reach out about doing shows and I won't do the shows with them. And it's because when I hear them play their songs, I don't believe them. Like it, there's something about that to me. Like I want to think that if you're singing about heartbreak in certain ways or whatever it is that you've been through it, like it's something that actually connects to you. It's not something that just was pitched to you and you liked. And now I know why every time I've ever heard one of your songs that's been like more of the somber tone is like, because this dude lived it in one way or another. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Um, I remember when we left. So after, after hurry home, uh, we had, we were still kind of figuring out things, but I had already seen the writing on the wall. The gentleman that signed me to Arista was a gentleman named Joe Galani. Joe, uh, was very smart at Arista. Joe was a great guy. Um, gave me my shot. Jim Catino was still my A&R guy. And Jim, I owe him an apology. I owed him an apology. And, and uh, because after, I, I didn't mean to hurt Jim when I left, but um, I went to my label and asked to leave because they were asking Joe to step down. Now, the reason that I was concerned was because the people that were going to be taking charge and taking over uh, when Joe left, were L and S. Do you remember those people from the, one, my, the from ones my, that you don't have a very good, a very good uh, rapport with? Staff saying that they wanted to turn against me, and I did not have a, I did not have a lot of faith in them not being the same way or worse after they didn't have somebody above them that was looking out for me. So, I I asked to leave Arista, and you got to think. Uh, Carrie Underwood was established. Brad Paisley was established. Brooks and Dunn was established. Alan Jackson was established. I was the artist that they broke. Yeah. The first artist that, that with all the records and everything, the, the hits we had, the songs of the year, uh, living our love song, uh, um, and, uh, Alyssa lies. And still I asked to leave. So what it would look bad on them in the industry. So what do they do? You think you're, you think you live in a small town? Nashville started telling everybody how hard I was to work with. Yeah. And so I had friends that that jumped ship. They left Arista in the staff part of the, of the label. And they went to like Capitol and other records across town. So I thought, you know, I'm going to get a chance to go over there and work with them. And I didn't get a chance to, because by the time I started shopping those things, I remember S um, called my hometown radio station in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, Lisa McKay was the rest her soul. She she was the program director for QDR. Lisa was hard. Dude, she didn't. You would think my hometown would jump all over me, uh, my music and help. They did, but only when I proved myself. Like, Alyssa Lies was in the top 20 before, uh, before my hometown station started playing it. And Lisa said, well, okay, now it's a hit. And I'm like, <laughs> please, thank you. <laughs> and... But I knew where I stood with Lisa, you know? So when I left Arista, Lisa called S and she said, all right, give it to me straight S. She said, why did y'all part ways with Jason? And he goes, you want the, you want the truth, Lisa? And she goes, yeah. And she said, he said, he didn't want to go visit radio. He didn't want to do any of the stuff that he needed to do. And Lisa McKay blessed that saint so she's she passed away a few years ago of cancer very sudden um lisa i will always have respect for her um but even when i wasn't getting my song played she told s she said you know what you could have told me anything but that 
Yeah. And she goes, what do you, what do you mean? And she said, Jason, when he comes home from being off the road and she knew this about me, cause I, I she saw me, I'd be home for like a week or maybe four days. And I heard that my hometown station was doing a, a radio interview down the street at the food lion, you know, I would show up to their radio remote and sign autographs and take pictures for the fans. That's cool. I would just show up and that's what I did. And so she said, you know what? You could have said anything about him except that. So, you know, that's, that's part of why that was the, that's the real story to why I left Ariston was uh, so right there between I sleep when I'm dead in Louisville to, um, you know, playing, (laughs) playing where I'm from without even discussing a second album to, um really not believing they had my back and they went around nashville and told everybody it was hard to work with which as you can tell i'm i really don't like talking to people that's why we've been on this thing so long Art. oh absolutely not complete strangers just sitting here i mean that's what if you my thing is if they think you're difficult what the hell would they have think the greats would have been what do they think that that george would have been back in his heyday or merle or Waylon or any of those they would have caused so much hell today. It's, they wouldn't have got on radio because of them. Like that, just because the way that the industry views that. And that just makes me so damn mad that if you don't conform, all of a sudden the narrative on you is that you're difficult. No, maybe I'm just got a good backbone and I'm not going to let you run all over me. So wound up leaving Arista and uh, my manager at the time, um, Greg Hill, uh, I don't mind throwing his name out there. He didn't really do much for me. Um, he, yes, I, love he, it. I love uh, it. He's he's with uh, he's with a red light, I think, and um, that's who I signed with at the time. Tim McGraw was with him and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, this is gonna be a great management team. And when I signed with him, uh, and I said, hey, we're leaving Arista. We need to figure out what we're doing. And his exact words to me were, well, I'm not a label shopper. And I said, well, with all due respect, I need to find somebody that is. So I fired him. So next thing you know, I'm all alone in Nashville. And Patrick Davis called me up. He wrote it where I'm from. And he said, man, I'm, let's produce an album. And so I said, sure. And so I talked to Pat Patrick, and and I I just started talking to his wife at the time about uh, managing me, you know, because she was managing Steel Magnolia at the time and, you know, a couple other people like that. So I was like, well, yeah, let's do it. And um, wound up going and getting – um doing a record with Patrick. Uh, we did the numbers album and we got the idea to go shop it to Cracker Barrel. At that point, Cracker Barrel only did gospel records and they did not allow distribution outside of Cracker Barrel. We were the first artists that they did that with. If you go to a Cracker Barrel now, you can find, you'll see records in there that are at Walmart or that are at Target. Yeah. We were the first one that did that because I said, if we're going to do this album, um, we will have to you know, have distribution outside of Cracker Barrels. And they, they agreed to it. Now, the reason we even shopped and thought about shopping Cracker Barrel was because after I got out of the Marine Corps, before I started my music career, I was already in a band. We were trying to figure things out. Uh, um, I wasn't in a band. Not not quite. I'd just gotten home. Um, I got a job at Cracker Barrel store, store 243 in Henderson, North Carolina, and went and opened that store. And I started, I would sing to the radio inside the the Cracker Barrel. Now, what people don't know and this is this is where it's some shit gets deep um is i would sing to the radio while i was waiting on tables and then sometimes people would hear me one lady in particular heard me 
And this old lady, she's come in on Friday nights and she was always sitting by herself. And she, she I walked by her table and she'd go, excuse me, young man. Can, was that you singing? I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, can you, can you sing to me? And I thought that was the sweetest thing. And at Cracker Barrel, they had this thing, the customer, whatever the customer wants. That's what you're supposed to do. So I wound up going and talking to my manager. I said, hold on a minute. I went in the back. I said, hey, this lady wants me to sing to her. He goes, I don't care. I said, she wants me to sing. Am I supposed to sing? He said, whatever the customer wants. I said, yeah, that's what I'm here for. Do you want me to sing? He said, do you want to sing? I said, sure, I guess. He goes, well, then go sing. So I went out there and I ducked down and I sat beside the table. I said, ma'am, my manager said I could sing to you. She goes, okay. And I start to sing. She goes, hold on a minute, son. She stands up and goes, everybody, y'all be quiet. This young man's going to sing to me. And <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. And I got a tip from across the restaurant, $5 from a, from a table. It wasn't even mine. So I was like, I became the singing waiter at Cracker Barrel. Dude, that's, that's cool. why we shot him. That's why we shot the Cracker Barrel deal. The hostess, her boyfriend was in a band. Now she said, do you sing all kinds of music? I said, I love everything. Tupac's my favorite uh, poet of all time, by the way. Dude, me and, too. One thousand yeah, percent. Dude, so I cried. I was in I was in boot camp when he died. Our, yeah. our drill instructor came to the squad base said, "All oh, you want to be thugs in here? Your patriarch just got shot and killed in Vegas." And I cried. Um, but um, so I remember this lady comes up. And she goes, "My boyfriend's in a band and they 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 sing." So I, I went and auditioned for the band. And the song I auditioned with was a song by As Yet in the nineties. Um, Last night you were so into it. You told me secrets that you never told us. So you were so nervous and yet also comfortable as we explored our visions of love. <laughs> Dude, I loved that song. And so I auditioned and got the part. And uh, I panicked because I was the only white guy in the band. Um and so I was scared. <laughs> yeah. Our first gig was at this big festival, R&B festival in Raleigh, in Durham, um, at West Point on the Eno is what they called it. And our first gig was that big festival. And I was the only white guy in the band. And I backed out two weeks before the gigs. I was scared to death that if I screwed up, they would know. <laughs> oh, know? yeah. So, dude, I was so upset, man. I shouldn't it, have done it. Looking back on it, man, everything worked out the way it's supposed it, to. But isn't it crazy how times have changed, though? Because if you would have been the singing waiter, now at Crackle Barrel, you'd have 10 million followers. Like I'd be viral. Yeah, your yeah. your Isn't life. Call it? Yeah. Your <laughs> life would have changed the next day after the first video. And I, I don't you know, think that's always a good thing. I think I think the good ones stay around or whatever, not just a flash in a pan. But like you would have literally skipped so many steps with that today. Well, you know, they said that uh, when we released Arista, when we, at Arista, when we released Alyssa Lies in 2006, they said that the industry had changed so much because they were just starting to recognize digital sales and they weren't really sure how to how to claim digital sales as successful. And even today, they're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. So you're talking 20 years that they're, they're still trying to figure that digital side of things out. They said if I'd released it six months earlier, six months, they said I wouldn't have had to worry about anything the rest of my life, the way that that song took off. Yeah, but I because bet. it changed so quick, and I'm like, well, that doesn't help me at all. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't that suck? <laughs> I I have that shit happen with me all the time with the podcast. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're good, and like you get a lot of downloads and everything, but you came in at the time to where if you just started this five years before, you'd already had stupid money, but now you're going to have to grind for about 
three or four more years before you ever get to that point. It's like, damn it, don't, don't just miss yeah. the boat. Yeah. So, um, so we did the record with uh, Cracker Barrel. We put that record out, and then um, I left Patrick uh, and his his wife and I. We parted ways, and then Patrick and I we parted ways. Um, I still I still respect Patrick. He's 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 a good songwriter. He's been in town a long time. He's still doing his thing. Um, and uh, we wound up. Oh, thought I heard somebody down there. Sorry, <laughs> you good, bro? <laughs> um, so we wound up uh, leaving Arista and leaving that next step, that next phase of things. Um, and when we did, we wound up doing some things with a. Uh... Hey, son. What are you doing, bud? You okay? You sore? Worse? You okay? Oh, okay. Well, I'm on a podcast. You want to say hey? Come on, say hey, big fella. <laughs> this is my youngest son, JW. He just got home from soccer, so he's going to go soak in the hot tub. What's up, yep. dude? Hello. Yeah, come on in. How are you? There you he He's wearing his Bucky shorts. <laughs> he's getting in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, dude? You any good at soccer? I uh, try to be. Yeah, he's going to college for it. Yeah. That's awesome. He's dude. 17 years old. He graduated high school at 15. He's been he's already finished one year of college, and it's my wife's brains, not mine. You got any musical talent like that? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to you in soccer, brother. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, dude. <laughs> but uh I hope you feel better. I'll see you in a minute, okay? Um, so we wound up leaving uh the Cracker Barrel record. Started working on a couple different projects, um, and I remember I'm trying to trying to really draw a timeline here because now this is where things get hairy because I've been on my own since then, um, gone through a couple managers, um, just really didn't feel that they. I, I always try to think outside the box. I hired some yeah. managers that used to be like in NASCAR, you know, and they had no country music experience whatsoever, and and they and you know I'm thinking outside the box is going to be great, you know, and and it proved that it wasn't great. But anyway, so um left them worked on the uh, what colors your sky record that uh that we wrote um and uh, i'm trying to think numbers what we went from numbers to uh i'm actually looking up your stuff i, I just had it pulled up and it went away uh you had because there was oh, this, so on the numbers album in 2013 which mm -hmm. was a very big year for country music. Okay. And this is what, this is goes to show that if people believe and will take a chance, great things can happen. Okay. And it, I mean, great things because it happened to me, but also just there's we're as listeners out there, we're not getting the best music. We're getting a machine telling us what songs to listen to. Play and, it again. It's it's it blows my mind some of the crap that we're that we're handed, yeah. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And and and, and honestly, you could go buy that that record that that song's on and hear four other songs that are better than that one. Yeah, you know. Um, and so a buddy of mine at, at Sacramento, again, that's all my stories seem to keep going back to there. He was the pro music director there. He called me up. He said, Jason, you just released this record, Numbers. I said, Yeah. He goes, He said, Um, I really like this song on here called Let Me. And I was like, okay. And um, he he said, um, can I play it? I was like, please. Yeah, sure. Okay. We're independent. That song, so across the board in 2013, across the nation, 
worldwide there was a small little song that everybody knew and it went number one in it and it blew up the industry like nothing ever before it was a song called cruise you know um cruise went number one in every market in 2013 except sacramento california yeah i had the number one song in 2013 in sacramento california because my buddy that was a music director there and he didn't give me the song because he's my buddy he yeah. likes music and he lit he listened to that song matt Vieira. if you're out there i love you buddy you know who you are matt now works for uh broken uh, uh red street or uh, which one's red 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 arrow Is broken, broken bow, bow? Whatever. he works for broken bow but it's the division of broken bow the other oh, okay one. so okay. yeah so he works with john loba and those guys and matt's with them now but he's the guy that took a chance on playing my music. And we had a number one song when, when Cruz was number one across the country, mine was number one in 2013 in Sacramento. Dude, I a hundred percent believe it. Whenever I worked in radio, what you would have the people requesting compared to what the music consultants were telling you to play is so different. Uh, I know it's a kind of a different genre. It's more folky, but Tyler Childers came out with Creaker while i was working in radio and it was number one on so many itunes charts everything else but he doesn't have a song on radio co wetzel was also blowing up at the time not a song on radio and you would get those requests for like the newer stuff are uh, are the not i say they're less traditional country they're more folky and co's more rock anyway but the stuff mm -hmm. that people were requesting that were like really really country were never never what these people were telling us to listen to. And I, I just never could figure that out. I never could figure out. And I don't have anything against Kane Brown. I don't, it's not my flavor. Of, it's just, it's not like, I just don't, I just right. don't like a bunch of his stuff. It's obviously good. Dude's killing it. You know, he's got his fan base, but you would never get a Kane Brown request, but you'd get a Jamie Johnson request you'd get stuff mm -hmm. like that and it never made sense to me while these people i, I want to say they they literally create the chart they literally create what they say is the top 10 they've got it literally in the bag when they put something yeah. out they're like this guy's definitely going to be this is going to be number one well hell when you make it that way it's pretty mm -hmm. easy like when you're the one calling the shots it's pretty easy and it's not yeah. even what the people want to hear i've never understood it no, and, 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 you know, that's just the way the industry's always gone. And uh, I remember um, after we left Arista and after we were independent and we were, we'd finished the numbers record or, and we were out doing our thing, we started recording for um, What Colors Your Sky? And I remember after getting that, that those tracks back, I played them for my dad. Um, my dad and I, at that point, um, I didn't really want a lot to do with my dad after I knocked him out when I was 21 years old. So I didn't talk to him for a while. Yeah. And my wife, when Junior, the kid you just saw in here, when he was uh, born, my wife told me, she said, you know, your dad deserves to know his grandkids. And I said, okay, but if he messes up, I'm taking him out. And um, my dad turned out to be a great granddad to uh, my kids. He took them to Chuck E. Cheese, for God's sakes, and I hate that place. Um, the only one. <laughs> and um, uh, my dad passed away. Um, he kind of gave up we're Hispanic. I told you that. And my dad was very, um, a lot of his identity growing up was in his machismo, you know? And again, my dad grew up hard. Uh, yeah. um, I had a granddaddy 
my dad's dad, who again proved his entire life that he just wasn't worth much. Um, but my dad really kept going and giving him another shot. You know what I'm saying? And this guy, he owned 13 radio stations out in the Midwest, Wyoming and all those places down there. So when I started my music career, dad was like, well, we, I, we'd make demos and my dad would call his dad up and try to reconnect with him. And then he's like, Hey, Jason made a, uh, an album or, or a demo dad, you should check it out. And he's like, Oh, send it on to me, son. I'll give it a listen. And he would never play him. And it was literally every time that he would let my down, my dad down, it was like watching my dad at seven years old when that guy walked out of the house yeah. every time. And it broke my heart. So then when things started taking off for us in Nashville, of course, some of those radio people come up to me. They're like, oh, I know your granddaddy. He's so proud of you. And I'd say, really? Because he didn't play any of my songs before I got here, you know? <laughs> and um, um, so... When my dad passed away, uh, this year will be seven years ago. Um, I, I, I was, I was really letting a lot of things get to me. I had made some bad decisions, and I, I started drinking a lot heavier than than I uh, than I had in the past. And um, before he passed away, I was running five miles a day, five days a week, maybe six days a week. The only day I would take off for sure is Sunday, and I was running five miles a day just to clear my head, get the demons out, you know, and. I would start drinking and, and when dad passed away, I quit running and just, just did, just drank. Um, this picture behind me, let's see if I can go this way. There it is. The Marine Corps gave us that folded flag when he passed. And that's my dad sitting in the box. And that was sitting on our mantle downstairs at home. And, um, I, I would get drunk on a bottle of crown easily. Um, and I'd, I'd yell at that photo and my kids heard it. My wife saw it and, um, I came up with this idea. We're working on some new music now, so I'll be telling you about that going forward. But we came up with this idea for a song, um, that no one ever hangs sad pictures in their house. You know, everybody, all the pictures are always happy, you know, um, unless it's a five-year-old crying, which usually there's a funny reason behind it, you know? Yeah. Um, I got this idea for a song called Argue With The Walls. One, one night after the drunk fest, and I was yelling at that picture back there. Um, I got this idea for the song where I, I wanted to uh, talk. I called my buddy James Kelly. I said, hey, man, I've got this idea called Argue with the Walls. I'd like to write it with you. I said, I wrote it. I told him the story I told you about my dad. And I said, but I don't think I want to make it about my dad. I think I'd rather make it about a relationship. And he said, okay. So we wrote this song here. And I, this is uh, this is definitely gonna be on the studio work next time we go in but uh it's one that i wrote with i just saw the picture behind me and it kind of leads into where i'm going with the rest of the, the stories from here so walking through the halls of our old home probably best not to be alone probably shouldn't have stayed till that last call because now i'm in the mood to talk but there's no use talking to these frames of our good times Cause the problem with the picture is it only tells one side. Didn't we look so happy? Don't we? Don't she? I thought we were. I was wrong all along and now that she's gone, I think I finally see her. Even though no matter what I say, she'll still be right. 
I've had enough drinks and it feels like it's a good damn night to argue with the walls. That is number one. I know that I could listen more, but everything that she was waiting for, never knew we were headed for the storm. Till she walked out the door. I could stand here yelling at reflections all night long. But I know the only voices that I hear are gonna be my own. Didn't we look so happy? Don't we? Don't she? I thought we were. I was wrong all along. And now that she's gone, I think I finally see her. Even though no matter what I say, she'll still be right. Yeah, I've had enough drinks and it feels like it's a good damn night to argue with the world. I guess picture perfect isn't always what it seems. If I'd have seen that, then maybe she'd be here with me. But didn't we look so happy, don't we, don't she? I thought we were. I was wrong all along, and now that she's gone, I think I finally see her. Even though no matter what I say, she'll still be right. Yeah, I've had enough drinks and it feels like it's a good damn night to argue with the walls. To argue with the walls. To argue with the walls. That's the damn country song. Woo! Dude. If you have a, uh, I'm going to have to ask for a favor. If you got a demo of that already, you're going to have to text it to me. <laughs> I, don't know <laughs> yeah, can, got... I, I don't know if I can wait for the album on that one. <laughs> but I wrote that for that. I wrote the idea for that man behind me right there. So, um, oh, dude, we've all been there on that one. Um, so I, I wound up drinking so much that, uh, and we didn't know this at the time. Um, <clears throat> and I was still writing. But uh, about two years ago, almost three years ago now, when when COVID came out, um, the C, the real C word. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I wound up uh, getting in the hospital, and we weren't sure why. My daughter was downstairs. Um, she was home from school that day, and she said, uh, she told my wife, she goes, "Dad's moaning in the bedroom, and I don't know what to do. Like, like he's something's wrong." And and she knew I was in pain and I, and, and my wife said, look, he's not going to go to the hospital unless he's ready or wants to. So just, just, you know, say a prayer for him, I guess. And, and I didn't know that she had called my wife. And about 30 minutes later, I came out of the bedroom holding my side and I said, Hey, I need you to take me to the hospital. And so we get there and they're thinking, you know, it's, it's kidney stones or something like that. And I, um, I, I told him it's not kidney stones. Something's wrong. And, um, 30 minutes later, I was on a morphine drip being transferred to another hospital and I had no iron, uh, in my blood. I had no magnesium. My potassium was gone. Um, and they found two gigantic blood clots, one in my hepatic artery and one in my splenic artery. And the splenic artery had exploded and killed half my spleen. 
and the the one for my liver the hepatic artery was threatening to do the same thing now you can live without your spleen you can't live without your liver so um they put me in a hospital for over a week and i posted online say a prayer because we don't know what's going on from that point on we went through cancer treatments uh they thought cancer they thought crohn's disease they thought all that stuff and then um i went i went on a juice diet um there's a there's a biography on a documentary on Netflix called Sick, Fat, and Nearly Dying mm-hmm. that I went and looked up and I watched that. Um, and it was a juice cleanse. So I went on a juice cleanse for like 30 days. Um, and it seemed to help. They sent me home with morphine pills for pain. Uh, I mean, pills of morphine, not a drip. Like uh, so, I mean, Oof. so I was taking morphine at home, you know, and that's not good. No. Um, I um wound up going I called a friend of mine and she saw my numbers she's a neurologist a neurologist at um at Vanderbilt in Nashville and she saw my numbers she said Jason the it's screaming cancer you've got to go get checked out now so she had the Vanderbilt GI department actually uh do work me in like like slide me in um uh with I mean they were backed up like months in, in advance and I got one like the next weekend so I went down there and um they couldn't figure out what was going on. I was bleeding internally. We didn't know what was going on there. Um, for two years, we went back and forth between cancer and uh, and Crohn's disease. And um, I almost died uh, in the hospital. And they said, had I not come in, I wouldn't be here. And so everything kind of came to a head last year. Um, I started noticing that when I would drink, you know, I, 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 uh, I couldn't handle my liquor anymore and I was drinking nowhere close to what I'd been drinking, you know? Um, but I would, I'd black out and I'd never blacked out before. Um, I'd, I'd had moments where I, you know, would be, you know, I'd have my issues or whatever, but, and I'd be an idiot, but I, I, I remembered them the next morning, unfortunately. Yeah, we, <laughs> and, we've, uh, been, we've all been there, brother. And, uh, but I started blacking out and then I started saying some really nasty things to my family and, um, and just being a, a, a piece of shit here at the house. And, and uh, last year, um, I uh, it, had, it had come out that I had um, I had had an affair on my wife. She um, that had we were actually working through that part, um, and that was not an easy thing to work through at all. Um, and I was definitely not proud of it. It was something that came out and, and I was kind of relieved when it came out because I, I didn't have to hide it anymore, you know? Um, and, um, so we were working through that and, but my drinking got worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And to the point where in August of last year, my wife, um, she called me an alcoholic and I got pissed off with her and told her she didn't know what the hell she's talking about. And what really sucks is that to show you how big a piece of shit I was at the time um, and that I can be, I guess, is my wife is going through some major, major uh, things right now with her, uh, with her mom. Her mom has Alzheimer's uh, dementia. Mm. And um, I even wrote a song about it with my buddy Johnny Orr down in in Florida. And um, we did a music video for it, uh, and we actually shot it at her mom and dad's house. And her mom's in the music video. If you watch the video, you, uh, that's her mom that's in it. And uh, had we waited a month after that video was shot, her mom deteriorated so quick that we wouldn't have been able to get her in there. And even with all that going on, I, I still kept drinking and really just 
blacking out, but we didn't know why it was as bad as it was getting as bad as it was. And it turned out um, that we believed that I was drinking myself to death and we didn't know it. My body couldn't absorb anything but alcohol anymore. Um, I couldn't absorb I'd, I'd eat food and I wouldn't put on any weight because my body wasn't taking anything from it. And, um, and I was literally drinking myself to death. I was bleeding internally. Uh, we were having issues with that. Um, and telling me I was, I was dying from it. Didn't make me want to stop drinking. And that's the sad part. Yeah. So I wound up, um, really showing my ass one night after she was willing to stay there and work with me. Um, and, um, I wound up, uh, really pushing the limits one night to the point where she moved out and my kids quit talking to me. And, um, I, six months before this, you know, we talked about this when we, we got on here, you said something that I was trying to get back to this and I'm glad you said it, but it's something I tell my stories all the time. Yeah. I think if you write country songs long enough, you become one. Yeah. And, uh, and I wrote a song six months before this that goes like this right here. <laughs> it's uh, um, <laughs> it's, this is the irony of all this. I know it's my fault. We are where we are. I took you for granted. And I broke your heart. They say forgiveness. And cost lots of time. But I'll spend every second I have. Because you're worth all of mine. And I wish you could see the changes I made. I quit smoking and drinking and staying out late. Started reading my Bible and praying. I ain't giving up. And I think you still love me. I know you still care. I see the tears in your eyes. I wish I hadn't put there. All that I broke, how work to repair. I ain't giving up. I wrote that six months before Dude. shit. Man. I'm also going to need the demo of that. If you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wound up, um, I'd quit drinking before, you know, but when she called me an alcoholic this time, I was like, well, okay, here comes another three week cycle. So I, yeah. I, I quit drinking. And I uh, quit for two weeks and she, you know, I, I canceled gigs. My, nobody was here. We've got these hue lights in the house mm-hmm. and I can change all the light bulbs in my house to a certain color. So I changed everyone in the house to red and labeled the scene hell because I'm real dramatic that way. And, um, and so, are we related? <laughs> oh my so, God. I, so I wound up doing that and lived in this house for a month and didn't answer the phone calls, didn't do anything. I messaged, she said she wanted me to be accountable to everybody um, besides her. So I posted, if anybody followed me on Instagram last year, then you know about August uh, 4th or maybe the uh, maybe about this time last year. I posted a video online, me driving back from Nashville, saying, I'm a piece of shit. I cheated on my wife. I'm an alcoholic. I don't want anybody to call me. Don't, don't, don't check on me. I, just leave me the hell alone. And I posted it to Instagram. 
Well, I got in trouble for doing that. Even though she said she wanted me to be accountable to somebody besides her, she meant go see a counselor. And I just thought I'm going to be accountable to everybody out there. So I put yeah. it out to the, to the social media universe. So I got in trouble for that one. So then I didn't answer my phone for three, for three weeks. When I finally started answering, I got a message from one of my buddies. Um, Ira Dean um, is from the band Trick Pony. Ira talks about his sobriety, so I'm not really blowing him up on anything. He was one of the first persons to message me on Instagram. He messaged me and said, hey, when you're ready to talk, call me. And um, the the first phone call I answered was from a friend of mine down in Texas. Uh, they're like family to us. Um, Mike Gustin. Um, Mike called me up and I answered the phone call and he's a Texas guy. So I didn't expect anything less. When I answered the phone, he goes, did I piss you off? <laughs> I said, no, sir. And I told him that Wendy had left and I was there by myself. And he said, hold on a minute. Let me call you back. And an hour later, he called back and he said, Jason, come home to Texas. He said, get out of that house, come home. And I, I said, okay, when he goes, when do you want to come? I said, tomorrow. So I flew back to Texas the next day and I sat there and I didn't drink for three weeks. And I called my wife. I said, Hey, I haven't drank for three weeks. I've, I've done drinking. You coming home? She goes, no, you've got a lot that you need to work on. And that pissed me off. Yeah. So, so I sat there in Texas every morning I'd get up and I would grab my phone and a cup of coffee. And I'd go put my feet off his dock into his little pond back there and let the minnows nibble at my feet. And I had a guitar on my right and a pack of cigarettes on my left. And I said, well, if she's not going to come home, I might as well just stick to what I know best. And I wrote this song thinking I was going to really show her. And uh, <laughs> this is what I came up with. These never <laughs> turn out good for anybody besides yourself, right? I already know it's going to be good. <laughs> Hold tight. <laughs> so this is what I came up with when I was mad at her down in Texas. <laughs> Thought I could have been the one to keep you happy. Thought I could have been the one that kept you turned on. That wasn't the problem, by the way. <laughs> Thought I could have been enough to keep you around. Well, I reckon who I am is why you're gone. Cause I know how to be the life of the party. And I know how to drink with all my friends. Who I was was what you loved. Now you say it's why you live. So I guess I'll just stick to what I know best. <laughs> and I wrote that song for her and uh, I came back home after about two weeks in Texas and uh, I called her up and said, Hey, you coming over tonight? And she goes, no. I said, well, you need to come over. I wrote a song for you. She goes, you did. <laughs> and at the end, and she came over and I went like this right here at the very end of the song. I went and just looked at her like, Oh, I her. <laughs> gotcha. and she looked at me Oh, dude, I got it. I was, I knew I'd got it. And she looked at me and goes, <laughs> it's a good song. <laughs> boy, we, I was pissed off at somebody one time. And this is like, just when I, there's one boy around here. Cause I'm, I'm learning to play the guitar and I'm horrible at it. So like, mm -hmm. I have a guy that comes over, he'll sit down and write with me and everything's a young kid. And, uh, this girl had told me one time, 
she was like she said that i wasn't special but she said it in a way like somebody's being a bitch like right at the moment it was like how do i put it she's like don't think that you're special I, like you're not just somebody like everybody like you're just like everybody else so we sat down we wrote a song called um uh you ain't special but it is to right. say like it, fuck you like, that's what it, like one of those that it, 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 it didn't turn out good for me uh in that situation it didn't make the situation worse so i wound up uh getting uh really thinking about it and and at first i joined um the program you know um for her to try and get my family back and and the longer i was in there i realized that that the only way this is going to work is if i do it for me so um i i started doing it for me about three months into the into being sober i would been sober three three months three miserable months but no help from the program no you know nothing like that. And, um, really started giving it a shot and, um, uh, and I just crossed my year sober mark. So Dude, congratulations, um, man. Yeah, that happened, uh, August 5th. And so I'm, um, that's, I'm really giving it a chance here. I've, I've go to meetings every day. And, um, actually this morning I had one of my buddies here in town, um, that came, drove up two hours to, to spend the day with me, you know, and he, he just drove up and I told him I had this podcast. Dude. So he, he went and go saw a friend of his, but he drove up. We spent the morning together and uh, went to our meeting together online. And so, yeah, I've been doing all that and still writing, dude. I was so scared to death. Like when I got sober that I wouldn't be able to write country music anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was, it, my anxiety was through the roof. I, I really felt like I had developed an anxiety disorder over the years. Maybe that's why I started drinking so heavy because I was trying to hide it with my drinking. But, dude, I was scared to death. And my first time going to back to Nashville when I said, okay, I'm going to give it a shot and see if I can still do it, you know, writing whiskey songs on, on a sober yeah. mind. And, and, dude, wound up uh, getting a call from a buddy of mine. He said, hey, let's write. I got this idea for a really dark song. I was like, what's what's a dark song? What do you mean? He goes, he goes, man, I got this idea for a song, and it's it's got cocaine. And he, he threw this yeah. line in and out. And I'm like, I'm like well, we're going to blow right past the I can't write whiskey songs thing. Yeah, <laughs> so, write the coke songs. Well, well, that's the that's the problem, though. I mean, and I don't think it's a problem. That's one of the issues with country music. Like, I had to get out of the mindset because I am such a huge Keith Whitley fan and such a huge oh, yeah. George Jones fan, right? And even Paycheck. Um, and it's where, like, I idolize these guys that country music was about drinking, heartbreak, and all this kind of stuff. So it was very easy to get wrapped up into, if I'm going to be around country music and I'm going to be around other artists and I'm going to be around all these people, like I have to have that mentality because I think that that's what they, their mentality was, right? Like that, that's what it takes. And I've come to find out probably the same way you have. That's not it. Like it's so hard it's so hard to get out of that mindset though. I can see how you would be scared to death that, well, hell, I'm not living this lifestyle anymore. How am I going to write the next great drinking song? Dude, that's what, I mean, seriously, that, that was something that I had to come to terms with. And what the crazy part was, um, it took a buddy of mine saying, Jason, he said, how long have you been doing this? I said, 25 years. And he goes, how many times did you drink? And I was like, every night. <laughs> he said you have enough experience you're not going to run out of stories yeah and and when he said that i was like wow yeah that's that's pretty cool so 
that's what I'm doing, man. This is this is uh this is new to me still. Um, you know, I'm I'm back in the gym, starting to work out. You know, the crazy thing is all those things I told you about when I um that I was I almost died and then couldn't absorb anything and we we assumed we kind of thought maybe I was drinking myself to death when I quit drinking. Every one of those symptoms cleared up. Dude, every that's one. Insane. That it Dude, will. I mean, I, it's it's the it's, it's the craziest thing, man. And the thing is, again, in my mind, you telling me I was killing myself drinking didn't make me want to stop. Well, that was a huge problem with my show. Uh, actually, the last episode that I did, this is kind of you know, I just the good Lord always puts you where you're supposed to be, not where you want to be, in my opinion. And the last show that I did is one of my when I first got it started in radio and social media and everything seven eight years ago. I got hooked up with a guy that's in Nashville now, still Trey Landon. He's a younger guy. And he's like, he's like my little brother. Like I love him to death. He's playing a show for me tomorrow night in Macon. And he's been sober now almost the same amount of time that you've been. Um, he's a Georgia boy. I mean, he he's just a really good guy. And so we spent the majority of our episode talking about him getting sober. And mm -hmm. I told him that probably about February of this year, I hit a wall with my drinking. Like it got to be because everywhere I went, I thought that I had to get drunk. I really did. I thought that I had to just overdo it because that's what you wanted. Those red door conversations at two o'clock yep. in the morning, you know, like you, you think that that's what you're supposed to do. And yep. of all people, Bobby Pinson gave me some really good advice one time sitting there with him. And he was like, I, he was just like, you got to remember there's only one or two people in here that are successful. Everybody else is just wasting their time getting drunk pretty much like this. You yep. can't, you can't say that you're going to do this all the time and it'd be, it'd be good for you. So I decided that I was going to cut back on my drinking and I tried to do, uh, we were playing in a golf tournament for creative vets at old Hickory. So I had a month before that, I decided that I was going to learn to play the guitar as best I could. Cause there was a guy from creative vets teaching me. And I was going to write some stuff and everything, but I was not going to drink for that whole month. In that whole month time, my body reminded me how good it feels not to drink, not to wake up every other day with a hangover, like what you're actually missing. So now like I'm not, I'm not sober by any means, but I've cut my drinking back to one day a week. I stopped looking for reasons to drink. If that makes sense. Like, I've got two events tomorrow, one with Mission 22 and one with our show in Macon at the Humminbird. And I'll drink at the one, I'll drink at the thing tomorrow night, but I wouldn't just on a regular Tuesday now look for a reason to drink. I don't, I don't need a reason to drink anymore. Like if something, if I'm around, then yeah, I'm going to have a couple of drinks at a bar with my buddies and stuff, but I don't, I don't want to need that reason anymore. This is a song that, um, you say you work with 22, uh, um, uh, organization my buddy rick tiger wrote this song with two other guys and I asked him if i could change it up a little bit to make it more me yeah but this is one of the things that this is one of the reasons i work with a lot of wounded veteran groups I'm, i've got one coming up in a couple weeks in ohio called operation cherry bend um we take wounded veterans out on guided hunts That's this cool. is a song that um... well i bet you never thought you'd ever hear from me again I'm reaching out to you from the other side. And I sure hope that you and God can still forgive the way I said goodbye. 
When I put that bottle to my lips, like a bullet to my head, and took away more pills than the doctor told me to. But let this battle that I fought not be won or lost by a broken mind that couldn't think things through. So promise me this, that you'll do your best to be one less of one of the 22. Oh, dude, that's good. And that's the song that I play out now um, to to remind people that they're not alone, man, and our veterans need our help. So, dude, that, you're awesome. I knew I was gonna like you anyway. I just knew. There's just some folks that through their music are what you hear other people like. Even Vaden, Vaden was texting me. He saw where I put uh, tagged you in something a while ago on uh, Instagram, and then he saw where yeah. you were playing the show next week, uh, August 23rd in Nashville for us at Live Oak. And uh, he just messaged me, and he was like, "How you like Jason?" And I was like, "I had fucking adore. I already knew I was going to, but it's you can just tell you're one of the real ones. And uh, like it, if you knew how much I hated everybody, I hate fake people. I don't like people that are authentic. Uh, I get called an asshole a lot, but it's just I I know what I like. I know, and if you don't like that, I'm sorry. Like I don't tell you what to like and what not to like." But like you can just tell, dude, you're one. You're one of the good ones. I think, and I mean this wholeheartedly. I think like your best songs are probably still ahead of you. I don't think. I don't think just the success you had earlier, I, in your life. I don't think that's where it ends with you. You can just tell there. You got everybody's got something, and in the story you've lived and the life that you lived, there's a song there that you just haven't wrote yet that is going to affect people so much. Well, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> this is- one I wrote uh, last week, and I, this will be my last one because I got to get ready for a um, for a. I, I, I'm doing a Twitch stream tonight for. I promised everybody I'd be on at seven o'clock, but um, you go ahead, brother. Let, end, uh, end us on something great. This song right here I wrote with a guy named Little Skinny in Nashville. Little Skinny just got a record deal with. That's Drop my Time baby. Record. That is like my yeah. little. Oh yeah, me. That's like my dude. We're always together. I love him. Dude, so. And he, he signed to Jim Catino's label, Jim Catino, yep. back to my Aris story. So I love both those guys, man. Yep. This is one that we wrote a couple weeks ago. That I don't know if he's going to cut it or if we're going to get it cut by somebody else, but I'm pretty proud of this song. Um, and uh, a young man in a two-tone Chevy took that curb too fast. Not sure the breath he took before the crash would be his last. Wrapped that truck around a tree and walked away without a scratch. There goes God again. There goes God again. A mama crying late at night, tears streaming down her face. Her little boy comes in the room, says, Mama, everything's okay. Sits by her side, says, I'm right here. You don't have to be afraid. There goes God again. There goes God again. There goes God again. When we've got no one else, he's there to fix the mess we made when we do things ourselves. You think by now we'd learned. 
how good a friend he's been. Every time we think we find there's no way out, and then there goes God again. Sitting in an empty house and feeling so alone. Thinking that nobody cares and they'd be better if he's gone. Right then his cell phone rings and it's his daughter on the phone. There goes God again. There goes God again. There goes God again. When we've got no one else, he's there to fix the mess we made when we do things ourselves. You think by now we learn how good a friend he's been. Every time we think we find there's no way out and then there goes God again. Every time we think we find there's no way out, and then there goes God again. There goes God again. Dude. Dude. The fact that you did that with Skinny, too, makes me like it even better. But that is a jam, son. Man, I'm telling you, that song, it, it just feels like it's a hit. Um, and we'll see, man. If I, I if Skinny doesn't cut it, uh, Katina was so excited. He's like, man, I've got three other artists that are cutting right now that would cut this. I'm like, that's Great. that's Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of those wall hangers right there, dude. That's a special one. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much. Well, dude, uh, I'll let you get. I know you got some other stuff to do, but thank you for hanging out with me. Uh, this was a great show. You're you're awesome, dude. I can't wait to be around you a little bit more, man. Brother, looking forward to next week, and thank you so much for having me on. And uh, man, this is gonna be fun. Anytime, dude. You let me know anytime you want to get on here and talk or do whatever. We're gonna have to. I'll leave you with this. We do these things, these group shows, and we do them like at our. We don't do them in public. We do them in our Airbnb or wherever we're recording at while we're in Nashville. And Skinny's been a part of them before, but it's just all the artists sitting around. And you can play originals, you can play whatever. We usually just get like the artists to play whatever got them into loving music in the first place. And it okay. like like it's just so like people like this outside the music realm, they'll get to hear like the guy you was even telling me about earlier, the one that I didn't know. It's, it's just where artists get to hang out because it's just become a business to y'all. Sometimes you don't even remember why you love it. So I try to do some shows to where the artists get together and it's like you get to vibe and get to, you know, you don't, obviously you're not going to drink and that's fine. And I respect the hell out of you for that. Some of the artists get a buzz and they'll, okay. they'll, all of a sudden they'll start playing the shit they wish they could play, you know, but, uh, Man, but I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine with every bit of it. Let's go. We're cool, dude. Well, Jason, thank you so much. And uh, I will see you next week at Live Oak, brother. Thank you for everything, dude. Thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate it. Anytime, bro. All right, folks. Well, thank y'all for listening to the Josh Terry podcast. I will see y'all next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.